Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayo. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this episode, my sister Kay Kellum and I are going to be talking about our experience at C2E2 2016. Now, we're recording this after the fact. Uh, we just got back home to San Diego. No. You're right. No, I'm still longtime San Diegan, but I've been in Austin for about 15 years, so you think I would start defaulting to Austin. Ah. But, you know, given all that happened, it's, it's not surprising. Oh. C2E2 is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're recording this on the Monday night after. We took a travel day before and after. But our story actually starts on the Wednesday before. Mm -hmm. I'm at work. My sister calls and says, I've been on the phone for 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Thereabouts. Thereabouts. With American Airline, we have a problem. Now, of course, at this point, I'm thinking, oh, geez, they messed up the flights, whatever. I We've had airlines cancel flights day before. Mm -hmm. We've had airlines lose baggage. Mm -hmm. We've had, I mean, we travel a fair amount. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm about... Halfway to the million mile mark on American. I've Mm -hmm. traveled on other airlines and such. But this was a first for me. Apparently the problem that you were trying to chase down that we still have to get resolved, the airline had lost me. When we went to put in my frequent flyer mile uh, or number, which I've had for, what, 20 some odd years? Since 1987. It's printed on my credit card. When I buy my comics, I get airline miles. Mm -hmm. Or apparently somebody's getting airline miles. Mm Mm-hmm. They were trying to convince us I didn't exist. You know, I gotta respect any major corporation that tells me I am wrong. I do not have a brother. Yeah. So we wound up Wednesday night spending... An hour. About an hour on the phone with American and finally got transferred over to Citibank, I guess. Mm. And Citibank was extraordinarily helpful. Yes. They're like, yeah, you've had an account here. We've been sending miles to them. All good. Unfortunately, it was uh, in the evening, so the uh, American Airlines customer service thing was closed, so we had to call back the next day. Mm -hmm. So our actual trip starts with us getting to the airport, checking in. So there I am, sitting at the gate, essentially, Mm. for a flight, on the phone with American Airlines, once again being told I don't exist in their computer. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But finally, the guy we talked to kind of understood there must have been some sort of clerical mistake or whatever. What I really liked was having customer service representatives tell me that you don't exist, you're not my brother, that the account number I have for you is wrong, even though the correct owner of that account number sat in the seat next to me on flights in February of 2015. I don't know what went wrong with the system. We still don't know. We still got to chase that down. But that's how our trip started mm. with uh, with an airline asserting I may not exist. So I spent the entire weekend trying to assure John he does exist. I encourage all of you to check John out on Facebook and let him know he does exist. I would say use the podcast. Facebook's a bad example. From there, I may not exist. Well, no, but if they stop in and, you know, tap the podcast post and say you exist, then they also heighten the uh, visibility of the podcast. If you like that I exist, click like. How about (laughs) that? There you go. 
So we actually had a pretty good flight out. Uh, we had, I guess, a tailwind. A tailwind that got us in an hour early. Yeah, it was fast flight. Uh, so that was good. Met up there with our friends that we uh, stay at in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, went out to the... I believe Cooper's Hawk. Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurant. Mm-hmm. That was excellent pasta. Had a great meal there. They had uh, some gluten-free, dairy-free uh, pasta. Um, actually, before going there, we ducked into... Mitsuo? Mitsuo, which is uh, like a Japanese grocery store slash little bookstore area, which I found very fascinating. I was hoping to find maybe some Super Sentai stuff there. Did not. They had some Common Rider stuff. Mm. Some Ultraman stuff, but no Super Sentai stuff, but it was worth checking out. Um, so yeah, we had a, a great meal. These are one of the meals that I, I refer to as our uh, word problem uh, meals. Because when we first started having these out in uh, San Diego many years ago, you know, I was sitting at the table and I was thinking, you know, this reminds me of the, the math school problems. Yes. The logic problems. There are eight people sitting at a table. Three of them are brothers. Only two of them are brothers of each other. Three of them are sis- uh, Four of them are sisters. Only three of them are sisters of each other. There are three sets of siblings at the table. There's one set of twins. There is one brother-sister combination. There's one boyfriend-girlfriend combination. There are four guys, four girls. Who is so-and-so? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it just reeks with one of those, okay, wait, I've got to sit and map out who had this relation with what, you know. <laughs> Um, what we do is we, uh, at a lot of these conventions we've gone to, San Diego, uh, C2E2, definitely, uh, Toronto, uh, we hang out with, uh, the Chans, um, a couple of sisters, uh, that are just really great fun to, to hang around with at conventions. One of them, of course, has a boyfriend, and we also hang out with, uh, Jeff and Phil Moy, mm. who, among other things, used to work on Legionnaires. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them worked on, uh, the Powerpuff Girls, that was Phil. That was Phil. And then Jeff used to work in the gaming stuff, mm-hmm. still does? I, Ravensoft. Ravensoft. All of them great people. The Moys are fun to hang out with. Uh, I always enjoy going over to Artist Alley and just kind of watching them draw and do their stuff. Um, and sometimes hearing about what they or others around them have been commissioned to do. It's like, okay. Well, and seeing uh, their photos of cosplay. Yes. The cosplayers that wander the artist alley, and Jeff and Phil get some fantastic photos. They do, and they have almost the inverse uh, experience of the con, where we're all moving around, they're stationary, and the con either does or doesn't come to them. Yeah. So, again, seeing some of the uh, cosplay photos is just insane. Erica usually takes pretty good photos, too. She does. She does. And Erica and Linda check out both the cosplay contest at the Marvel booth, as well as this year, they went to the little uh, cosplay parade in the family mm-hmm. zone. So they had just fantastic photos. Yeah, C2E2 has a pretty good family zone that's set off a little aside. Uh, mm-hmm. Has, you know, very family-oriented activities. But also the main room itself, the main exhibit hall, I think was very family-friendly. Oh, definitely. And uh, the Marvel booth for probably two hours each day, maybe more. They had one of their uh, staff members with uh, Captain America's shield, mm-hmm. inviting people to go up on the stage in front of one of their big backdrops and here, hold the shield, have your photo taken. And it cracked me up how many little kids got up there. And the shield was almost as big as they were. Yeah, I saw a few of those. 
And, you know, the kids were just having the time of their life as they're posing with that shield. It was great. Well, the the backdrop they were in front of was the Captain America Civil War. Mm, Very nice. Steve Rogers on the left, Tony Stark on the right and stuff. And when they came out with the shield, the first time I saw the Marvel guy doing that, I'm thinking, does he come out later with like an Iron Man gauntlet? (laughs) So jumping into Friday morning, we Mm -hmm. were staying out in the suburbs a ways. Um, we, uh, always start out with a, a big breakfast, so we did that. Egg Harbor. Egg Harbor, uh, great chain, love that, has some very good gluten-free, uh, in, in my case, dairy-free, uh, food, because finding stuff at the convention center can be kind of hit or miss, mm. and expensive even if you find it. So we usually, again, start with a, a good-sized breakfast. We got in there around opening time. Tennish, yeah. That worked out well. Um, I made it a few rows... Through actually no, that morning we started at kind of the back end of the hall, I guess, and I made it up through aisle one hundred before it got to be around um, noon when I was meeting up with uh, Com Salute Eric from uh, Cowabunga over at the Marvel booth. Had a great conversation with him and his partner at Cowabunga, um, James. Ah. I think it is, and if I got the name wrong, I'm sorry, guys. But talking with them was a lot of fun. They've had that store uh, about a year, I think they said. Store's been around about uh, 11 years or whatever. And just talking to them, it was clear they kind of understand what people are looking for and that it basically everything I heard made me think, wow, that's got to be a great store. That's very cool. They're attentive retailers. They're smart. They're paying attention to what's going on with the industry. They know where, you know, they can make some money where they should make some money more in a few places where, you know, hey, that's not just the right way to do it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so came out of that with a, a lot of respect, had a, a great time talking with them. It was a lot of fun. And then after that, I think I wound up um, spending quite a bit of time up in uh, some of the pan- – actually, what I did after that is um, went up to uh, the 3D Tips and Tricks for Comics by uh, Brian Haberlin. Mm-hmm. He's done Anomaly, he's done Shifter, he's currently doing Faster Than Light over at Image, which is a monthly book. The others are graphic novels, Anomaly being the largest uh, original graphic novel ever produced, I believe is mm-hmm. how he refers to it as. And one, it's just got a crazy page count of hundreds and hundreds of pages. And also, it's just a really large book, but all of his stuff has kind of an augmented reality thing to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and he's got free postcards, if you ever see him at a convention, uh, that, that show some of this off. It's a free app you can get on your uh, iDevice or your, your Android device. You point the camera at the cover, something pops up, and it's like, well, you know, here's information about the spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Or, and some of this they do through, uh, like, Unity, which is used for games and such. Mm-hmm. So one of them, and I think I talked about it when Drew and I reviewed that episode of Faster Than Light, it was the interior of the spaceship. Oh, nice. So you could walk around the spaceship. Nice. It's like, that is so cool. Um, but I found that panel just fascinating. Uh, took a couple of, uh, of pages of notes. Now, when I say I took pages of notes, hmm. I've got this little pocket composition book. So one uh, page of notes is maybe 10 lines that holds maybe four or five across. So don't make it, I don't want it to sound like I'm, you know, writing this, this novel or something. Oh, of course you are. I'm not. I'm too lazy. But one of the coolest things he showed was the 3D model for the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier bridge. Oh, nice. And he's like, well, you know, you could just say, okay, this is kind of the 
the angle I want with the where these chairs are, where the consoles are. Okay, that's what it'll look like. Let me draw, draw, draw. Or, you know, I want to use that printed out light box. It, you know, copy, copy, tweak, tweak, you know. Mm -hmm. Or that's exactly what I want. Render, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. And there have been a lot of times in the comics it felt like they had that sort of, you know, computer assistance or whatever. And some people love it. Some people hate it. For my mind, if it fits the art style and stuff, mm -hmm. I'm all for it. And it usually does. And it gives it a consistent look and feel to mm -hmm. the universe. Mm -hmm. And as long as they're not slavishly devoted to it and it's in the way. And it basically never seems to be um, in most cases. I think it really can enhance the art and free the artist up to do more kind of value add stuff elsewhere if mm -hmm. that's what they choose to do. Um, so they had that again, got a, a number of great recommendations for some software I should be checking out. Um, and of course he's doing this whole thing of, you know, click, 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 see, it's so easy. You mm. know, and he's not saying that it's, you know, you got to play with it. You got to learn it and stuff like that. And he also does digitalarttutorials.com, I think is the website. If you look up Brian Haberlin and tutorial, it'll go to his website and he's got C, uh, DVDs or whatever on lettering, coloring, inking, uh, you name it, he's got it. Nice. And he came up through kind of the image uh, side of things starting in, I think, 93. Mm. So he was in the early image studio where they were all in the same place and just learning off all of these other guys as they mm -hmm. were doing some really cool stuff. And he's sharing it and just, I was, I was amazed um, by both his depth of knowledge, his process, his uh, just, just love of sharing all of that information mm -hmm. um if you ever have the chance to see him uh one of his panels at a convention i really recommend it he's also uh fairly active with some of these pieces of software not just as a user but also with the developers nice he was talking about one thing and i forget which piece of software it was if it was photoshop whatever he's like if you do this this and this it works and even the developers don't know why mm-hmm <laughs> Kind of, oh, we didn't expect that. It's cool. Yeah. But also with uh, Poser Pro, he'd worked quite a bit with Smith Micro on the comic book line rendering and some of the other cool features that they've really been enhancing in some of the later versions. Nice. Because he's using a variety of programs to do his stuff. And the thing that just blew me away, he said, now he's doing it kind of like a TV production. Mm-hmm. So when you start up a TV show, you got to build the sets, you got to cast the actors, you got to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's some setup work. Mm -hmm. Then you shoot the, the episodes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So obviously you're going to have with a 3D kind of a deal, you got to do the modeling, got to set some stuff up, whatever. So that's that's an investment, but that's a buyer build sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, 20 bucks, you get a, a conference room or whatever, or, you know, or a taxi or something you don't may not want to draw. Um, so it's not like you've got to, got to, got to build it all. But once you've got that and it's just a matter of, okay, I've got the pieces. Now let me assemble the page and the panels. Yeah. He was saying he could do six to eight in a day. Wow. Compare that to uh, maybe one. Yeah. For a, a regular artist. Yeah. That's. Phenomenal. You're going from, you could do a page to, you could do a backup story in a day. Mm-hmm. And again, assuming you've got the script, you've got the right components, mm -hmm. whatever. So uh, just very impressive. Uh, had some really cool stuff. Really enjoyed that panel. Um, 
took, like I said, a couple of pages of notes. Uh, he had a recommendation even for a, a scanner, because I've talked mm. about how mine's not supported by Windows 10. Yeah. Um, so after that, I wound up going back down to the floor. I was going to go to another panel, but decided, yeah, not too excited about that. And at that point, I'd only done one aisle. Yeah. So I did aisles 200, 300, 400, 500, up to about 600 or whatever. And at 500 was where his booth was. So I mm. had a great conversation with him. Good. Asking about, you know, hey, what about this? Why are you doing it this way? How about, you know, mm-hmm. different things? And just a very friendly guy. And I, I really think, again, he's doing uh, groundbreaking work, both in terms of process, but also some really cool stories. Nice. You know, again, we've seen the anomaly, his mm-hmm. booth with that at San Diego and stuff. It's always got a crowd and always did here, too. Nice. Just the, oh, well, pops the, the 3D image out or whatever. It's just mm-hmm. thinking out of the box and, and doing some cool stuff. So I did that and then um, wound up at the budgeting your comic book panel. Um, I, of course, was hoping it was the how to spend all your riches that you make publishing a comic. Because it's so easy. Mm-hmm. Of course, I knew that wasn't going to be it. Um, this was one that was done by uh, Andy Schmidt of uh, Comics Experience. He used to be over at Marvel uh, for about five years around the Civil War period and stuff. So he's, he's been around the block. Um, and then Jib Zub was, uh, was there. And they were kind of talking about what they would consider, quote unquote, the financial reality of comics. Mm. And how it's, it's tough. I mean... Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of things, content creation, penciling, inking, you know, mm. coloring, the the logo design, you know, production costs, um, and your marketing fees. And just, he had a couple of really great slides, which I need to see if they're on his website uh, at uh, Comic Experience, which the whole comicsexperience.com thing that, that Andy started is basically to help people learn how to do comics. Which is very cool. You know, again, Haberlin has his DVDs and stuff like this. Uh, they've got at Comics Experience, I think, more interactive kind of courses and tutorials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Forums with people who've been around the block. So if you want to learn writing, art, uh, lettering, inking, you know, editing, mm-hmm. they've got stuff on that. So again, there's there's tons of great resources out there. Um, but they were talking about everything from kind of the push marketing of you know, pushing your product into retailers and pull marketing of essentially getting the readers to kind of pull it out of the retailers and such to to help get that all the way through um had some some comments about you know how to how to estimate your first issue sales mm. based on the popularity of the creators the uh the characters the, you know is it a fresh concept or not um what i found very interesting was when they were talking about both in that panel and when i went to on i think saturday about estimating the sales after the first issue yeah Take your first issue sales, say it's 100. Second issue will be 40% of that. Next issue will be 30% of that, and then 20% of that, and then 10% of that. Yeah. So you start at 100. By the fifth issue, you're like 29. And I got to see how that compares to the numbers I'm actually seeing, which is, again, from their perspective, uh, a comics experience, Andy had seen presumably the numbers at Marvel. Certainly for what they're doing through IDW, they're seeing what goes into Diamond, mm-hmm. whereas I'm seeing what's coming out of Diamond into retailers, mm-hmm. and there could be a difference there. Yeah. So I know a lot of creators, oh, yeah, the internet numbers, they're wrong, you know, oh, they go down to the single digit with their estimates and stuff. Uh, to me, that's illustrating a little bit of a misunderstanding about the numbers that I'm reporting that John Jackson Miller, whom I also saw briefly on, on Thursday, 
Friday. Uh, Friday, sorry, at the convention. Great guy uh, doing a he, uh, he had a Star Wars novel. Yes. Awesome uh, guy and stuff. Um, but uh, the John Jackson Miller, myself, and Milton are all reporting on. When you've got three guys going through three independent number crunching processes, and the results are within one unit of each other. Mm-hmm. Well, golly, that that seems like it ought to be pretty accurate for what it's measuring. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just a misunderstanding in some people's minds as to what it does measure. But that's separate topic. The uh, the budgeting your comics, a lot of it was them basically saying. Have realistic expectations, mm-hmm. plan, and and kind of budget accordingly, and be conservative in your 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 guesses. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, because he was uh, Andy Smith's point was if you took the the levels he was suggesting, and say for that hundred you had to do fifty to break even, you'd have made uh, I forget how it worked, like fifty units of profit on the first one, but that drops to like I forget if it was thirty or whatever on the next, and goes by a fifth issue like negative or something. So almost mm. doing a longer miniseries hurts you. Yeah. Which uh, I would agree with. Um, so that was a, a good panel. Again, uh, I came out of both that panel and the other one uh, that uh, Comics Experience did, uh, Andy Smith and stuff, really – I've been getting their emails for a while, but I need to pay more attention to them. Mm. I think they're doing some great stuff for the industry in terms of just educating people. Um, so I did all of that. I went to the uh, Silver Age Trivia Contest and one of your usual favorites uh this is only really the second time i've been i, I went last year mark wade had been there and stuff i went with uh his pants from comic geek speak I'm pretty sure it was him um and mark wade last year won but then one stood up and immediately fell off the side mm-hmm. of the stage fortunately wasn't hurt yeah this year i think they were all very careful to make sure while he was on the edge he was not that close to the mm-hmm. edge and he was very aware of it although he did threaten to do a, a don't fall like that if he lost. <laughs> Last year when they started the thing, they had a moment of silence because one of the members of the, f- the fan team had passed away earlier mm. that year. This year, they had another moment of silence because I guess another member had passed away. Mm. Now, they've been doing these uh, trivia contests here for like 20 years. Wow. Which I think is longer than the Silver Age was, but I could be wrong on that. Um, so, the fact that some of these guys are getting a little up there, mm-hmm. they're not- up there enough that they should be dropping like flies. Yeah, exactly. But they had to uh, to have a fill in mm. on the fan team. Uh, Tom Brevoort filled in. He's editor in chief, I believe, over at Marvel. Nice, and has been a, a high ranking editor for there for five, ten years. Hardcore geek again. Uh, reasonably good guy i still have to say that i have issues with the way he handled the civil war 4 delay four five six ten years ago whenever that was um but he knows his trivia nice not as well as mark wade knows his (laughs) trivia it was something where mark wade would hear the first few bits of the it's like he knows the topic the minute the guy basically says, you know, it's is an imagine is it a hoax, a dream, an imaginary story, or did it really happen for like a Jimmy Olsen thing? In Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number fourteen, and he's like buzzing in with Turtle Boy or you know, whatever Yeah. Not quite that uh prescient, but um he was buzzing in quickly, once or twice that bit him, but not often. Because he he knows how this guy right because it was the guy who does the Mr. Silver Ask Mr. Silver Age column and a comic buyer's mm-hmm. guide in years past, um, which was a good column. Wade knows how he's gonna, how the guy thinks, mm-hmm. so he which could helps. pretty much guess. But there were a couple of times 
where he actually corrected the question. <laughs> it's like nice. your answer you're looking for is correct, but the issue you said it was from is off by one. How funny. And uh, Mark Way was, was just hilarious because he's like, this is the one day a year all of this stuff does me any good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was fun. Mark Wade's always a, a hoot to watch. The other guys, the fan team, uh, held their own well. Nice. But, I mean, there are a couple I could get and there are a couple others. Because Silver Age, some of it's just before my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it's just a storytelling style that's it's not in my sweet spot. Yeah. Now, if they did a Bronze Age, I might do okay. Hmm. Probably not. I'm too forgetful. Um, but that was most of what I wound up doing on, on Friday. Um, what did you spend Friday doing? Walking the floor. Okay. Uh, part of it with the chance, part of it on my own. Uh, haunting the publishers, picking up mm-hmm. some free books. Uh, at one point, I went up to the food courts, the, the elevated. I ones. never made it up to that elevated section this year. Um, there are two separate elevated sections for the food courts. And on the one hand, I like them. On the other hand... It's a little frustrating because they're kind of like this island, not centered in yeah. the uh, exhibit hall. But it's such an interesting place to get this aerial view. Did you take photos from up there? Um, not full 360, but I got several. I did that last year to a degree. Didn't Like I said, didn't even make it up there this year. Um, it It's hard to get a photo that really gives a sense of the size and scope of the exhibit hall part of it is you've got banners hanging down from yeah. the ceiling and, and stuff again you don't have quite the right angle at times yeah um so i went up there i tried to get some photos just sort of showing how the autograph area was laid out how the artist alley was laid out stuff like that so for me that was kind of fun just because it's something you can't do in san diego that is one of the things about really almost every convention i've been to i wish there had been some way to get kind of above it and get contextual shots yeah. um, for what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of the venues like San Diego and whatnot, I almost wish that they could hang like webcams or GoPros or whatever from above in a grid pattern. True, you could at least see how things looked that way and watch the traffic flows and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also a boots on the ground aspect that you need too. Yeah. Um, the closest I've really seen to the kind of visual coverage i would would ideally like to see at a convention was the coverage i did back in 2000 2001 of san diego where i just went around and took photos of every booth yeah and you know it's something that i think with today's technology you know 15 years later or whatever you could almost build a 3d representation of a fair amount of the convention floor at that point yeah um you'd need some insane horsepower and some really good software, but, uh, you know, it, it'd be fun to, to see the photos turned into something like that someday. Yeah. You know, give it another 15 years, it'll be, you know, on your cell phone or, you know, common technology or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because Friday was a comfortably crowded day on the floor. Not overwhelmingly crowded, but not sparse. Yeah, not sparse, busy, but not packed. Yeah, but it's funny because when I went up to take those photos, it looked deserted. And I'm like, it, it's not deserted when I'm down on the floor. Yeah. It, it was funny how deceptive it looked from above. So, But I just enjoyed walking and really getting a sense of how much of the Funko Pop was available down there. Um, 
The Lego Mini. A lot of Lego Mini figures, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Star Wars, Avenger ones, uh, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Again, Funko, uh, the, there were a lot of booths selling that. They had a booth there for, this was subscription boxes. Yeah. Um, the Jelly Belly booth, I think it was Jelly Belly, yeah. not Jelly Beans, that was doing the photo mosaics is the style but made out of jelly beans and when i went there i think they had batman and yoda ah okay um and i tried to take photos of that but it was pretty awesome to see a yoda and like the lightsaber and the significantly lighter jelly beans so it just really popped yeah it's fun when they do something just a little out of the box like that yeah a booth yeah it looked like artwork and then you get closer and you're like oh wait a sec yeah, That's I think edible. by Friday night, I had only made it a couple aisles in and still had a lot of that left to do mm-hmm. on uh, on Saturday. Uh, Friday night, we wound up eating at Rody. I think so. R-O with a bar across it, T-I. Mm-hmm. Um, it, how to best describe that? Uh, it's the same kind of buffet is the wrong word for it as it's Chipotle. It's kind of like a Chipotle, yeah. Yeah, only instead of being burritos or burrito bowls, it's pitas. Yeah, pitas and stuff like that. Had and a, for a, those wondering why gluten-free people are saying, we loved it, it was great. They had a gluten-free bread option. They had a gluten-free pita. It's the yeah. first pita I've had in- 14 years. 15, 14, whatever, yeah. 2012, or tw- sorry, 2002. Yeah, so, 14, okay. Yeah. I don't know if I'd had Peter's right before getting diagnosed. Well, anyway, okay, true. Uh, but it was it was great. It was a nice uh, again. Mm-hmm. Did that with the the Chans, the Moys. Um, mm-hmm. Easy to get to. Uh, nice kind of off the beaten path. You know, it, it's it's not a ooh here's a fancy place or whatever. But it was fun, quiet, informal. Grab it, mm-hmm. eat, sit, eat, and have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I like places where it's it's. Good food, not going to set you back too much, and, um, you know, it's it's quiet enough you can have some conversations there. Mm-hmm. Well, and basically it was fast food without being burgers or pizza. Yeah. So it was a nice change of pace for a low-key meal. Agreed. So, very nice. Shall we move on to Saturday? We shall. So, Saturday, we knew we were going to have a bit of a late dinner. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing the usual go to Egg Harbor... We uh, drove into town. We were driven into town. Mm. I'm not about to go drive in Chicago. It just seems nuts for me. Um, picked up uh, Erica, and we headed over to... Hannah's Bretzel. Hannah's Bretzel. Hannah's Hannah's. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd eaten there before. Typically, that would be something we would do on a Sunday mm-hmm. uh, in previous years, where it's a get a breakfast sandwich, get a sandwich for later, hang on to that, and we would use that as the... Let's have some food in us before we fly out on mm-hmm. Sunday. This year we flew out on Monday, which worked much better. But since we were going to do um, a late barbecue, um, we decided to just to hold us over. Yeah. Get the breakfast sandwiches, get the sandwiches for later, get to the convention center. And then we'll, we were waiting for the line to open up and, and everyone to get in and stuff. We just sat in the lobby and had breakfast. Now, I got to say, I feel my most brilliant decision at Hana's was to get the quinoa bowls, the breakfast version and the lunch version. I think that did work well because um, (laughs) I wound up later in the day uh, getting done. Well, we can get to that later. later. Yes, that was a good decision. My quinoa bowls were excellent. Um, I got sandwiches and that had, yeah. Yeah. 
So we get there. Uh, the big thing for Saturday was meeting Drew. Mm-hmm. Drew and I have been doing the Weekly Comics Spotlight for three years now. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time we were going to meet face-to-face. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, doing a weekly podcast with somebody, you get to get a good sense of them and stuff. And Drew's got a great sense of humor, seems like a really nice guy and stuff. But there's always the, but what's he really like? Him. You've never seen him face to face. Yeah. You don't know him, know him. Um, so it was very reassuring to to meet him face to face and find out he's really just as cool in person as, as he is uh, on the podcast and stuff like that. Um, we met up, walked over to Artist Alley, uh, made sure to get a photo of each other, you know, or, or of us. We had that with the uh, one of the C2E2 signs in the background. I'll try to remember to post that on the forum. Nice. Uh, and just chatted for a bit. He was only there for the one day with his brother and stuff, so you know, he wanted to go hit Artist Alley, get some some autographs, go go talk to some people and stuff. And I had uh, a couple of panels I wanted to to go off to and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we only chatted for a little bit, but again, we talk every week. So to me, it was actually just meeting, shaking hands, and confirming he's real. Yeah, him confirming I'm real. That, my <laughs> my existence is the one in doubt. No. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, uh, just meeting him, um, it was really cool. He's he's just a really uh, great guy, nice guy. Uh, so uh, we'll have to do it again because I, I somehow managed to neglect you getting to meet him. Yeah. So, but no, I, I that to me was a highlight. See, now Drew must wonder if I exist. No, I'm kidding. I often wonder. <laughs> but he was heading over to Artist Alley. Or actually, I was there with him for a bit, but I wanted to go hit the... Um, from script to page and colors for artists and writers. Yes, because you went with me to that one. I did. I loved that panel. This one, it's funny because um, Buddy Scalera was doing it, and there was an aspect of the panel, and I, I get why they did it, that felt like they were pushing a particular comic a little, but they just needed an example to show from how to go from script to page. Okay, take mm-hmm. a timely one. That makes sense. He knew Buddy knew who who he was going to have on the panel. So the upcoming Gold Key Alliance, number one, they mm-hmm. use page three as the example. It was funny because, and not skip to the end of the panel, but at the end of the panel, the editor for the issue was saying, you know, we chose the page, etc. because of who's on the panel and wanting something timely. But because of who's on the panel, what we chose isn't in print today. So I couldn't bring copies for everyone, which I wanted to do because I wanted to be able to give everyone in the room, and this is how it turned out. And I thought, you know, that's really cool that he wanted to do that. Yeah, there are a couple of publishers, and I think Dynamite's one of them, that often in the back will have, here's a couple of pages, here's the script, here's the the pencils, the inks, the colors, and such. But what they did is they took page three of this, and basically, here's the script, here's what it looks like, here's the layout, it's not... Uh, other writers do it other ways, but here's how Phil Hester did it. And why. And why. But then, while they're going over that with the people on the the stage, which was... Did I write down who all it was? I don't think I did. Uh, it was no, I the did. artist. It was Joe Ryban, the editor. Mm-hmm. It was Brent Peoples, the artist. Ray Anthony, uh, height, colorist. Buddy Scalera was the moderator, mm-hmm. and then they had two people in front of easels basically laying out the page. One was Phil Hester, the writer, who's also a talented artist, and then Tim Seeley, who's mm-hmm. an artist. 
So Tim hadn't, apparent, as far as I know, hadn't seen the, the page before. She's like, oh, okay, yada, yada. Yeah. Phil had written it. Yeah. Well, Buddy handed a printed copy of the script page so they wouldn't have to keep looking oh, up at okay. the screen. Oh, okay. I didn't catch that. Yeah. He said, so you guys don't have to keep looking at the screen to see the script. Here's a printed copy of the script page we're doing. And while we discuss it as a panel, I'd like you guys to each lay out the page and draw it on these pads on the easel so that the audience can see that two different artists might approach the exact same script page in different ways. Well, and then later we see the actual page that Brent Peoples, the actual artist on the book, did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there were a couple of things that all three had done differently, but there was one or two all three had pretty much mm -hmm. done the exact same. And they asked all three artists to talk about one another's pages. What you like? Why did you do it differently? What is something that you think, hey, they do really well, and if I could do it as well, I'd have done it in mine. One, I think it was Phil saying, yeah, I'm not too good with the expression, so I tend to shoot from further back, you know, and do more of the, the body language, the mm -hmm. composition. You know, this other guy, uh, I guess it was uh, he was referring to Tim Seeley at the time, much better with that, so he's doing a bit more of the close-ups here and there, and, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it was very interesting. Um, the colorist was talking about the fact that, and he was showing especially um, Tim Seeley's page at the time, he was saying, you know, he likes to use the uh, the black marker especially, and he'll go in at the end and just really mark out places and make these bold areas. And he said, you know, when you're only looking at what he's inked, it may look a little odd. But for me as a colorist, it's really great because he's showing me where he sees the light coming yes. from. That's how kind of the penciler is communicating to the colorist. This is where the light's coming from and stuff. Mm -hmm. But also with the blacks, I think it was Phil Hester who was saying, I did this here to where it would point to this next panel. Mm -hmm. But the black on the leg kind of points you down to this. The guns point you over to here. This points you to... And mm -hmm. how he's using certain things to direct the, the eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Phil Hester was also the one that we'd both noticed. After he'd done the page, he'd walked up about halfway up the... the aisle mm -hmm. looks back is looking at it and looks all walks all the way to the back is looking at it again trying to get that that longer view mm -hmm. to see the page as a page mm -hmm. versus a sequence of panels because he's mm -hmm. very big on what he calls the the meta panel which is again the the, the overall page yeah he says the overall page isn't interesting to him then he's not gonna find anything interesting in the panels yeah. Which I thought was really interesting because he's right. When you first, when I flip through a comic book and look at if the page as a whole doesn't look interesting and the art doesn't draw me, then I have no interest in reading that. Yeah, a, a bland layout. And it's not even like you've got to have pop and pizzazz or something, but certain pages are easier to read than others and others are more conducive to read mm -hmm. than others or attractive to read. Mm -hmm. There are some that just are attractive to the eye and mm -hmm. that's not something that I can quantify or describe. But like he pointed out in the page that uh, Brent had done that made it to print, he was saying there's a panel with absolutely mo no background. No background, no borders, and it's in the center of the page to and, and Brent was saying that's to kind of open it up so it doesn't feel claustrophobic, and it's highly effective. Yeah, yeah. Because in that panel, you've got, and this is the panel most of them did very similar. You had on the left side the police officers having drawn their guns, and then on the other side, the guy they're 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 going to 
you know, pointing the guns at. Mm-hmm. And in that panel, those are the things that are that are relevant. Nothing mm-hmm. else is. Yeah, nothing else matters. And those guns aren't exactly centered, but they're close enough to center that but they grab your eye. In every case, they were going from left to right mm-hmm. to direct your flow. Yes. And one of the things they were always kind of stressing is making it clear kind of where the eye should follow, make it the layout of the panels and stuff, where you position people, play into that. But also things like leaving room for for dialogue. Yes. Thinking about that when you draw the page. Well, and they were saying that it was the letterer that did the effects. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. They were saying a lot of artists don't necessarily realize that when they're first starting out. Well, but one of the things I've noticed with some comics is the dialogue balloons will be placed such that if they had just had the two characters that are standing next to each other on the other side of each other, mm-hmm. you know, instead of me being to your left, you're to my, mm-hmm. you know, you know, flipped over or whatever, then the dialogue balloons would have just laid out so much easier. Oh, yes. So there's a certain amount of how are you doing the blocking for the stage play? Yeah. And how... Because you're not hearing the words, but you're visually reading balloon, balloon, balloon. Mm-hmm. If you had somebody stand, you know, to the left, to the right, or further forward or back, it, the the layout of the balloons radically changes in a much simpler way. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, that comes with experience. Yeah, yeah. And having an idea of just how much dialogue is there going to be on a page, mm-hmm. in a panel or whatever. Yeah. Um. So it was it was very interesting. Um. Phil's script was fairly succinct. Yes. Um, one of the things that I was thinking of while they were talking, and I forget exactly, it was something the editor had said, I think it was, but just kind of the, the, the term that popped into my mind was Ed Dictatorial. Yes. Where there are just some editors that are very heavy-handed, or maybe the the colorist or the artist up there, Brent or uh, Ray, or uh, colorist there, where certain editors are almost, this is the story you've got to tell, mm-hmm. and being very dictatorial in how they edit, versus just trying to pull the best story out of the people. Yeah. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, and the editor's comments when he was going through kind of the, the script, you know, what's important on each panel, one of them's a guy getting hit by a taxi, and it's like, can the guy draw the taxi right? Does it look like a taxi? Yeah. And on the one hand, it seems, well, how hard would that be? Well, it depends. If you've hired somebody from overseas, Mm. maybe their taxis don't look like ours. I was going to say, if you hired a Brit from London. Yeah, you've got one of those black British cabs or whatever. Yeah. And it's in New York versus a yellow taxi you're expecting. Yeah. Those sorts of things. Um, Mm -hmm. I I found it a very interesting uh, panel. Well, and I thought Buddy did a great job, not just with the moderation, which he did top notch. Yes. But at the end of the panel, when he uh, took the art off the easels, he didn't just bring it down the aisle so even the people in the back could see it. He stopped at each row, and for every person he saw holding up a camera or a phone with a camera to take a picture, mm-hmm. he made sure that they had a good, straight on sight of the art and got the nod from them of yeah the thumbs up i got the picture buddy uh i've seen him moderate before but he was in top form that day because Mm -hmm. 
again, going down, making sure everybody could see the, before he did that, he goes up to the, the easel, takes a photo of it, hands that to the people who are going to be talking about yes. it. Yes. Yes. And then is walking the, the actual page up to the, the, the audience. And we were in the back mm-hmm. and stuff like that, making sure everybody get the photos and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he did that. He was also taking photos of the panel at various stages. Yeah. You know, and it making was- sure he asked a question that would prompt a long-winded response before he stepped away from his mic to take pictures. Yeah, he. Uh, I he, thought that was awesome. I think if he had had two or three interns there, he could have put them to great use. But not having that, he did it all himself and was literally doing double or triple duty. He was uh, mm-hmm. just phenomenal in keeping the panel moving, uh, having an agenda, keeping it to a timeline. If we need to, kind of hit. Mm-hmm. get past the you've only got so long to draw it so we can talk about it stage and they had a shorter time frame than i think when they wherever they would usually do it maybe they get an hour and a half or something yeah but uh yeah he did a, a fantastic job on that it was one of those things where if he had had a web camera that he could have had on the the easels mm-hmm. for when it was being drawn or something show that on the screen might have worked but that might have been hard but no he did did a terrific job yeah um after that, we parted ways. We parted ways. I wound up going to a digital inking uh, with Brian Haberlin. Mm. And in that one, he was talking more about kind of Photoshop, uh, Manga Studio. He was using a, a Bamboo tablet uh, from Wacom, which I think he knocked off the, pedos- the, the, the podium twice. Mm-hmm. Um, did it bounce? Yes, it mm. did. <laughs> it took him a minute to plug back in. I, I don't know how much longer that thing is for the world, but he was he had quite a bit of equipment up there mm-hmm. because he had a tablet, he had his, his notebook, he had the Wacom thing, and I just I don't know that there was enough ample room. But he was talking about everything from the resolution you should be uh, scanning the black and white stuff in, showed a really interesting, uh, I think it was an Art Adams Godzilla piece mm-hmm. that was scanned in at, at low res. Mm-hmm. That he then resampled up to, to higher res was showing how you could um, uh, remove the blue lines, level it, do some stuff with an unsharpening mask, some use of, of layers, uh, the oil paint filter, the puppet warp tool, a couple of things, and just wound up basically taking pencils, mm-hmm. reasonably tight or whatever, and, and cleaning them up to the point where it's like, yeah, you could definitely print that as inks. Nice. And it's clear that, I mean, I, I've been to enough art panels, both at, at comic conventions, uh, I've been to a couple at uh, computer conventions, where it's, let's show you how to use Photoshop or this other thing, and it's click, 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 boom, beautiful art. Yes. I then go home, click, 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 it's like, what the hell happened there? <clears throat> yeah. So there's there's a certain amount of, you've just got to play with it and, and work with it and stuff, but he really shows some of the power and is illustrating how you can fiddle with the tool, exaggerate some of the uh, the parameters, and really get a sense of what the tool does. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did some really cool things in that panel and got some really good questions and, and uh, had also already talked about it a bit about, we can zoom in, clean this up, whatever. Because somebody asked, you know, what level of zoom should you be staying at? Mm-hmm. You know, and the guy had phrased the question in a way that, that Haberlin's point was, you already know you need to smack yourself in the hand and and zoom out because mm. you want to focus as much you want to keep in mind what will and won't be visible on the printed page yes and there are a lot of things where the printing technology works in your favor 
You don't need to clean up every little speck and smudge or whatever. If when you zoom out, it's just not really visible. Mm. So the temptation to zoom in and noodle at the details is almost a waste of time, or is a waste of time. Um, the other thing he really showed about digital inking that, that makes it so superior in one respect to physical inking, you can ink digitally in white. Mm. Yeah. Oops, too much ink there. Let me undo, you know, or... or yeah. Whereas using whiteout and things like you can't really do that as well in, in yeah. physical. Physically, it's hard to uncolor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, he pointed out some of his stuff. He was really good at the beginning of his panels of showing off kind of his work, what he's got, and, and kind of establishing his bona fides. And then it's like, okay, done that. Let's get to the teaching stuff. But mm. also pointing out, hey, I've got this over on my digital art tutorial site. This is something you might find handy. You know, things of that nature. He was showing, again, panel borders and how he tends to go with full-width kind of stacked panels mm -hmm. on a page because they're easy to read. Ah, uh, yeah. It's like, boom, I've got four. Drop, 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 boom, done. Okay. Yeah. But also, it really makes the panel, the, the layout inside the panels so much easier. Mm. Imagine if when, take whatever your favorite movie is. Mm-hmm. When the director of photography had to compose each of the shots that make up that film, they had to think about, well, golly, how wide do I want the screen to be? What do I, you know? Exactly. Yes. The fact that Star Wars is at X height by Y width throughout the film. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, it simplifies the storytelling and the reading and such. Um, again, that was another one of them where... Between his two panels, I was just writing out, ooh, I should check this piece of software out. I should do this. I should look at that. and Yeah. Just fascinating stuff. Um, he's got, uh, I think, a tutorial coming out uh, in the not-too-distant future on kind of his, his overall workflow, mm. which mm -hmm. I, again, uh, want a lot more detail on because um, it's very much how I think uh, if I were to do comics, I would want to do them. Um, but he's also got another uh, volume of Anomaly coming out later. Yeah. Plus, continual issues of, of uh, Faster Than Light. You know, what you were saying about uh, the coloring and you can do white and stuff. Our, one of the boys, one of our friends, was saying that uh, he's noticed the color he sees on the screen is not necessarily the precise shade of the color that he gets back from a professional printer. Absolutely not. And that's, that's physics. Yeah, because on the screen you've got, um, and forgive me if I get the terms backwards, but I think it's additive on screen. It's additive and subtractive. One of them, you're adding light mm -hmm. to build up to a white, mm -hmm. and the other, you're kind of subtracting by adding pigments mm -hmm. to get down to a black. Yeah, he was saying that he's been experimenting with the brightening the colors on what he sees on the screen so that he gets the same brightness he wants in the printed final product. That's one of the issues I've seen with a lot of colorists over the years. And I don't mean any particular, mm -hmm. but just as, as the industry was feeling its way out with this technology, that you'd have some stuff that looks great, but it prints really dark. Yeah. But it's also something I could see if you had it on the screen would really kind of pop out a bit more mm -hmm. because it's it's illuminating itself versus yeah not yeah he was showing me uh, a piece of art and uh, the belt had a green jewel 
And he said, I really thought I'd gotten the jewel tones to really pop. But the first time it came back from the printer, the jewel was just duller than I thought it looked on the screen. Yeah, and you may need to kind of exaggerate the contrast or something. I can see where that's yeah. a real challenge. Um, so I think that's just one of the very interesting things about all this digital inking that's going on well, now digital with the technology. And digital coloring and stuff. Yeah. I've seen a lot of comics where to indicate who's speaking, the caption text and background colors are used for that. Mm. So hmm. you can wind up with a bright green on a dark green for yeah. Green Lantern or something. Which is hard. There are times I have a hard time reading a book that way. Yeah. If it's late, I'm tired and, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. My eyesight's not getting any better. Really? Is that why you reach for your glasses periodically? That's why I reach for my glasses periodically. Oh, okay. So when that one was done... You don't want to know where I was? I was going to go through what I did okay. first. that's fine. Just checking. Um, when that was done, um, I stayed in that same room for the Digital Comics Roundtable. Okay. Um, but between those, I had... I, I put my, my phone into airport mode. You know, sometimes I think that's a brilliant idea. On Saturday... During your digital comics roundtable, I wanted to murder you for being on airport mode. But please, start here. Well, I had turned it on to, to get messages as I was reaching into my backpack to pull out my sandwiches. Mm. Or sandwich. Thank God you took it off airport mode. Yes. I had gotten a text from you and from the chance no, saying... Not me. Oh, I wasn't involved yet. Okay. That, that must have been my confusion. I got it from them with a, Do not eat! No, we we didn't mean to poison you. Don't eat your lunch. When uh, we'd gotten all the sandwiches from Hannah's, we divvied them up wrong. Oh. So I had accidentally gotten the wrong one, and it's a different kind of bread than I usually eat. I might have just eaten it if I hadn't been paying attention. So fortunately, uh, I was able to text them, when do we swap, whatever, and they were very gracious and trucked over from Artist Alley up to the panel room. Uh, so Chris was just kind of keeping an eye on my backpack as I ducked out, swapped, got back in, missed maybe the first 10, 15 seconds of the, hey, this is the digital comics roundtable or whatever. Um, that one had Mark Wade. It had Todd, whose last name I don't have written down in front of me, but he wrote, I think, The Economics of Digital Comics. Mm. I'm pretty sure I've read the book. If, it, if it's the book I'm thinking of, it was a really good book. Good. He's, I think, also one of the guys who's on the trivia panel. Ah, okay. Um. But they had a, just a lot of interesting stuff about digital versus print and, and all of that stuff. And for my mind, there's really three categories of, of digital comics. There's kind of the web comics, the PVP, the Dilberts, the XKCD, more gag strips or something mm -hmm. like that type deal. There's ebooks, which is essentially what you would think of as a comic book, but downloadable digitally. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of the, the native digital format or the infinite format at Marvel, which is, I think, more the category that Mark Wade tends to, to uh, uh, like the most. Where The things you couldn't download, print, and read the printed copy of. Well, things that have, say you've got a panel, you swipe, you get a dialogue. Swipe, you get a dialogue. Yeah. Swipe, the, the, uh, the art changes a little. And it's not animated, but it's not... Not animated. Yeah. I don't think you could print a PDF of that and have it be a readable experience. You would have to adapt it to print. Yeah. Versus the others, you could just literally print. Yeah. That's In what I was thinking. In between the web and the ebook, there's there's the size, you know, 
is it a panel or a couple of panels or a few you know dozen pages or something yeah um there was mention of the marvel uh augmented reality stuff they've done is a, a thing um and it was a really interesting um panel and whatnot and nothing particularly groundbreaking came out of it but it was a good discussion um again i think anytime you've got uh some some really smart people who are knowledgeable about different aspects of it up on the stage uh it's always fun particularly when you know digital comics mark wade that's you're gonna have a good conversation Mm -hmm. and he was always just hey this is my thought not gonna speak for anyone else on the stage but here's what i think sometimes they'd agree sometimes they'd push back a little yeah but it was it was a really good discussion um so I was in there with with uh, Chris Marshall, who used to do the trades episodes with me. Again, got to to chat with him over the course of the day and stuff. He's just awesome guy. Uh, really miss doing the podcast with him. Mm. Um, and then after that, I stayed in that room for a peeling back the curtain, a look behind the scenes of how a comic publisher thinks, which was another one of the ones done by Comics Experience. Ah, and the vantage point there that Andy Schmidt was taking was both from his time at uh, at Marvel, but also comics experience through IDW is printing comics, publishing mm. comics. Mm-hmm. So how do they go about it? And he was very clear, it's not. this is not how everybody does it. This is just to get an understanding of how a publisher kind of thinks. Uh, pal, uh, Paul Aller was up there, and then they were talking about kind of the history of the, the publishing they've done through comics experience and IDW. With Creature Cops, varmints, uh, Special Varmint Unit back in January of 2015, Drones in April of 2015, which I did read, Tet um, from September 2015, these were all, I think, four-issue series, and then the uh, Gutter Magic series that started up in January of this year, which was their highest sales yet, and the first to hit the top 300. Hmm. And there was talk about how some publishers are, are kind of looking for properties to turn into TVs and movies and stuff like that, and kind of how they evaluate projects. Again, freshness of concept. Is the artwork fresh and appealing? Is the story well told? Does the comic do something new or just do it in a new way? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the evaluation process for them specifically at uh, Comics Experience, the creator submits. And it was funny because he's like, the creator submits to Comics Experience. It's like, that sounded a lot better in my head, Neil, before Zai. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah. It was funny. And he seems to have a good sense of humor. Um, but it goes to their committee for reviews because he wanted to be sure it wasn't just what he personally liked. And there were a few that he was thinking, ah, we'll probably pass on. But the others, no, no, we talked him into it for whatever reason. Um, but then they, when they make the decision to, to, on these things, after discussing it, they either move to a financial analysis or they just kick back with a, no, we don't think we'll go with it now. And here's why. Mm. Not in in-depth, you know, page-by-page kind of assessment, but uh, we don't think it's ready, it's not right for us, we're doing something else. You know, some feedback. Mm -hmm. Because I think um, they were always annoyed when, you know, you'd submit something with a, if you don't hear back from us, it's because we've rejected it, but if you submit to us, don't submit to anyone else either while we're reviewing it. But you're not going to tell me when you've heard back. Yeah, yeah. So there's a certain rebelliousness of that sort of of crazy treatment i think there which i respect yes but they were also talking about the whole building a publishing company and how you should just figure out if you're doing that what you want your company to do for you 
how long you have to get it there and kind of how much risk are you willing to take. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he pointed out, and I really want to figure out this timeline a lot deeper, is that from the initial ad placement for an upcoming comic to the first check you might get from Diamond Mm. can be like seven months or more. Mm. That's painful. Submit the ad. It's being solicited. Retailers have about a month and Diamond's going to get it. Then you're going to print it. You're going to publish it. You're a couple of months out already. It may be another five months before you get a check. Mm -hmm. So how a lot of publishers have just had problems because they don't have that length of cash flow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, of what Andy was sharing at the various panels that was information I think a lot of people newer to the industry needed to, to hear. Mm-hmm. I've, again, been going to panels of this sort for uh, literally decades. And, again, part of why I haven't published is I follow the sales. I know it's a bleak picture. Yeah. You know, you want to make a small fortune in comics, start with a large fortune. Yeah. Um, But he was trying – he had a very positive spin on it. It's just – it's rough. These are the things you need to know. And if you go in with your eyes open and a good game plan, you can make it work. Yeah. But you got to know these things. Um, and again, he was going through the the drop in sales kind of guidelines they use just to figure out if it would be profitable or not and how you've got to balance. Do you go with a, a higher print run where you can get a lower cost per unit, but are you going to sell them, you know? And mm-hmm. There are a lot of, of decisions to make and Really, the only hard and fast rule he had, read the contract, mm. fine-tooth comb. Yeah. And that there are certain things that can be red flags. You know, does it have a reversion clause? Well, if it goes out of print, it reverts. Well, wait a sec. How does that play out with digital? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. And that there are some things that, depending what the publisher gives you, maybe you do want to concede certain things. Yeah. Maybe you don't un- under any circumstances. You just got to go in with your eyes open, know what's important to you, and and make sure you feel you're getting a fair deal. Yeah. So what Paul was saying was just how kind of slanted in the benefit of the creator, the comics experience mm. kind of deal was. But it's also pretty much exclusively geared towards those going through the comics experience uh, learning process. You know, Makes they're not sense. just opening this up to anybody. But and and the goal of the comics experience publishing is secondary to them being an educational kind of institution. Mm-hmm. So I, I really came out of it with a, a great deal of respect for uh, for Andy Schmidt and, and what he's doing over there. I need to pay a lot more attention to it. I've been getting the emails and stuff, but just kind of aware but not fully plugged in. That's very cool. Um, and then after that, I thought it was in the same room, but I was wrong. Unfortunately, realized that. It was like, this is a, not the crowd I would have expected for an editing comics panel. Realized, oops, downstairs, other room. Run, run, run. Actually, not run. But made it over just in time to, to get into the room, the correct room, uh, for the editing comics panel. It had Sierra Han, uh, Royden, who's doing stuff on Rust, uh, Justin Jordan, Ian Herring, Amy Chu, who's doing Poison Ivy. And it was just different aspects of what can you expect out of editors? What's it like working with editors? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, the, I think best pieces of advice they had was if you're doing kind of your own self-publishing or free, you know, uh, create your own stuff, hire a freelance editor, mm. preferably one with a good rep. Mm-hmm. Cause there are times that that gives your project almost a degree of legitimacy. It might not otherwise have if you're a new creator. Yeah. 
That's oh, a good well, point. you know, so-and-so over here is doing the editing. Oh, well, they've done good stuff before. This isn't some fly-by-night thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, and there's there's editors that are kind of project managers. There are editors that are more just proofreaders. There's some that do both. Mm-hmm. Figure out what you need in an editor. Mm-hmm. But basically, their mindset was you always benefit from having another set of eyes on the project. Yeah. You know, things that the the storyteller may just be too close because they know the story to realize isn't getting on the page. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was a good panel. Um, I didn't really get any specific other major takeaways out of it. Um, there was It was very clear from a couple of people that uh, I think it was Justin, um, when he's working at Boom, he's got just some editors that, that he just works really well with. You know, and one of his points is not every editor is right for every project or mm-hmm. every creator, whatever. Mm-hmm. Find a winning combination mm-hmm. and stay with it as long as it wins. Yeah, yeah. You know, and how the people he's got now, he really, really loves or whatever, but maybe this other project they wouldn't be the right fit for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, But it very much, uh, you know, had some good advice. If, again, if you're not comfortable working with them, if you don't like it, if they're not getting the best story out of you, find somebody who can. Yeah. Um, And the guy who did Rust, that was an interesting experience. He had one publisher that he had started working on the project with. Hey, can I think it was Random House when they were going to do graphic novels. Can you do eight? He's like, I can do two. They said, how about four? He said, okay. Gets a ways into, I think, the third book before the whole thing kind of folds. And they haven't published the other ones yet because he's still working. Because mm-hmm. you need some lead time yeah, to yeah. get that out. And he wound up shopping that around, but it was very much a... Thump, here's 500 pages to look at. This isn't the premise, this is the product. Yeah. But he also wound up, I forget if it was at Archaea's where it was, which is now part of Boom. And he was thinking, well, I was going to do it this way, but maybe sepia tone's the way to go. And they're like, we like it, but what do you think about using sepia tone? He's like, yes. <laughs> you know, because a lot of what they had pushed back with was stuff he had already been kind of thinking about or otherwise agreed. It's like, you know, that does strengthen the story. So being able to know as a creator what you're willing to to change and and have some flexibility on mm-hmm. versus no that kind of violates the story you are telling. Yeah, you know, right or wrong. I mean, there's there's certain things editors are going to push on. There are other things they may not, and there are other things the creator. Nope, that's just how it's going to be. Yeah, and while there's a hell of a lot to be said for creative vision, it's not always to say it's a marketable creative vision. I've seen a couple of comics where it's like, uh, and Saga is one of them. So it's it's a wonderful comic, but there are certain things I think if they had just come at it with a slightly different worldview, they could have opened it up to an all ages audience and had even better success. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe I'm right on that. Yeah. They stuck to their creative vision, which they should, and things have gone the way they've gone, mm-hmm. which has been successful for them, no question. Um. So that was that was pretty much what i did on saturday i think after that i wound up doing the rest of the floors up to yeah up to around aisle 1500 or so where i hit the comics bento booth and had just a really great conversation with those guys that's awesome um just on how they're doing some stuff on just retailing the state of the industry uh came out of there with just a ton of respect for those guys they also have a uh, one of the guys that was telling me about a like a subscription email service they do hey you want batman every month just tell us you want batman every month we'll send you the you know nice kind of a simplified version of, of dcbs if you will mm-hmm. 
um, without a, you know, here's the order form every month, whatever. And for me, that just wouldn't work. For other people, it may not work. But there are also other people. It's like, no, I I just want Walking Dead every month or, yeah, you exactly. know, whatever. Yeah. So for, I think for certain casual fans, and again, I don't know what their price point is or whatever, but um, having talked to those guys, uh, it certainly seems like something worth checking out. They know mm-hmm. what they're doing. They've, they've got their head in the game and uh, seem like really stand-up guys. I, I enjoyed talking with them quite a bit. Now, we hit a booth together at some point that day that hopefully you have a postcard. Yes, for. I do. Thank um, you. Because as much as we keep saying, oh, we aren't going to sign up for more subscription boxes. Oh, we're getting more than enough subscription boxes. I thought this was a good choice for you. Did we do this Saturday or did we do it Friday before I met up with Eric? The weekend is a blur. But I think we it was Friday. done it by this point in the con. I know that much. Archify. Arctif- A-R-C-T-I-F-E. How about that? Okay. Arctify. It is a subscription-based geek gaming and pop culture t-shirt program. Yes, I'm reading their postcard. <laughs> Every month you'll receive our T-Pack, which consists of a high-quality licensed t-shirt based on a trending theme. Every t-shirt we ship uh, is first to market, meaning you will not have seen it uh, prior to our packs. And the one they had was a gray shirt with the Captain America shield in white with kind of little rubber bumps bumps forming the shield. Forming the shield. It was a really nice looking shirt. It was kind of the shield in Braille. Yes. <laughs> I think that was that it's a monochromatic white Braille shield. That's how we'll go. <laughs> Um, the, the shirts were really good quality. The design looked great. Um, they had some other shirts that they've designed in the past to be sold in various stores. And I was just looking at those shirts going, you know, if that's the kind of stuff they design, I like it. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they're not a new company. It's just a new subscription service. Mm -hmm. They've done shirts before. Yeah. They've got a, uh, referral kind of a program. So as soon as I get a chance, I'll kind of put that up. Yeah, it was $9 plus shipping, which was about like 550 for where we are. So very reasonable, under $15 for a shirt. Under $15 for a shirt. Um, so again, we got the one. Um, we should be getting more coming. And it's a stay as long as you want, cancel when you need to or yeah. suspend. I, again, we haven't actually had time to look at the website yet. So we did it in person there, but it looked pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be adding that to the subscription box light episodes every month when we get yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but I liked the, the first one we got. Yeah. Okay. So Saturday, uh, my first panel was Supergirls, Melissa Benoist and Shyler Lee. Uh, Shyler's first convention panel ever. Wow. So she, she was a little nervous on the, I don't know what to expect, but I've been mm-hmm. told this is fun. And uh, the two of them seem to be having a fantastic time. Uh, clearly, they seem to get along. Oh yeah, they're good clearly, chemistry. Just I have to imagine it seems that way on screen. They are clearly wonderful friends. They good. were saying they text one another all the time. Um, they were poking fun at one another the way sisters do. Cool. Yeah. So they were having just a fantastic time throughout. Uh, they were saying that, uh, like, there was an episode where Melissa had to say really mean things to Kyler. Mm. And she's saying, that was really hard. I, I didn't want to say any mean things to her. I think we just watched that episode last week. Very recently. Yeah. 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 And they were saying that 
um, when there's a scene where one of them is supposed to be all emotional and make the other one cry, they really cry. And when one starts crying, it makes the other one cry. <laughs> yeah. So they were saying that they just, they get along really well. Good. Yeah. So they were a lot of fun to watch. Um, then after that was the Battlestar Galactica panel, uh, Edward James Olmos and Mary McDonald. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two are just class acts all the way. I've seen Edward James almost at Toronto. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the guy is, man, he's just hard to describe. He is. When someone gets up at the microphone and says, I really loved your character on West Wing and wish, you know, you'd done more episodes that we'd see more of you. And he said, you know, they actually wanted to turn me into a recurring character. Uh, but time wise, I ca- it came down to the choice between starting up and doing American Family for PBS mm-hmm. or doing West Wing. And mm. I just felt that doing the first Latin American centered show for PBS was more important and more meaningful and really the thing I ought to do versus being a regular over on West Wing. He's got a definite sense of social responsibility mm-hmm. and, uh, activism-ness to him. Yeah. And when I had seen him in Toronto, he was talking about how the top 1% of the 1% of the world's wealth, those guys are like buying up the water rights to the world. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you don't believe me. Look it up. Yeah. Check it out. Do your own research, but do your own, you know, kind of. Yes. Yes. You need to know this sorts of things and not dictating, not doing it, but just He's done his research, he's sharing his worldview, mm-hmm. and he's trying to not preach or lecture to the fans, but educate, mm-hmm. empower. He definitely encourages you not to be satisfied with what you were taught in school, mm-hmm. but to keep learning and not to assume just because that's what you were told, even if it was by a teacher in school, that makes it exactly the truth, the complete truth, and nothing but the whole truth. What I took out of what I've seen of him in past conventions was question things, make your own judgment, think about it. Yeah. You don't yeah. like it, do something about it. Yeah. You know, somebody went up to the microphone and asked each of them, what book are you currently reading? Mm. Uh, he is currently reading two books. Uh, one is poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was saying it was very very deep involved poetry by a poet who had uh, passed away not too long ago. The other book is about the Holocaust and what uh, politicians and people in power, uh, and it didn't sound like it was just in America, but predominantly in America, what they knew when. Mm. And he said, you know, you hear so much of this. The allies didn't know concentration camps existed until we rolled into them at the end of the war. Yeah, that doesn't sound quite right, but... And he said, you know, some of these books are coming out, they're saying, no, there were government officials that had found out about them before the very final days of the war. And that's something that, especially with a lot of the political conversation and the divisiveness that's happening at the political levels right now. Yeah. And stuff. And there was Trump discussion 
during this panel because Mary McDonald's uh, hotel room was overlooking a very large Trump sign. And she was saying, you know, I didn't expect to open the shades on my windows and be facing the world's largest political sign. It, it's I'm not surprised they can't get view. it taken down just on that stand. Yeah. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a wonderful panel. It was entertaining, but it was also thought provoking. Mm-hmm. Thought provoking so, is a good way to put, uh, and Edward James almost panel down as, yeah. 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 I, I strongly encourage anyone, if you ever have the chance to see either of them, uh, a, uh, Edward James almost or Mary McDonald, go to their panel. It's an amazing experience. Um, every seat was full for Supergirl. Part of that was people coming in early just to make sure they got in for Battlestar Galactica. But the room was still very, very full. Oh, I believe at that. At that point. And Battlestar was on how many years ago? A good couple of years ago. But again, almost is just, like you said, a class act, a very a powerful figure. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. the way he carries himself, what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the panel, as he did in Toronto, uh, he gets up and he gives, I want to call it a, a call to action mixed with a little bit of an inspirational speech that ends with, so say we all. Yeah. And he just keeps chanting it more forcefully and more forcefully as he gets the whole crowd on their feet, chanting it with him. I'd really like to see him, maybe Bruce Boxleitner. Mm-hmm. From the, the, the Babylon 5 contingent. Mm-hmm. I don't know who would be the right ones from some of the other areas of fandom. But just to, to galvanize a cross-section of fandom in support of just tolerance, mm-hmm. anti-bullying, mm-hmm. Uh, making the world a better place, be it uh, ecologically, politically, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain truths that we as... As, as sci-fi comic book entertainment fans hold is, is self-evident that apparently other people may not. Yeah. A certain amount of, of equality, be it gender, race, you know, preference, whatever. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of, of uh, motivating individuals. Uh, mm-hmm. Stephen Amell could yes. be one of them. Certainly a John Berriman or stuff. Mm-hmm. That just to, to channel, I mean, whatever your passion is for making the world a better place, mm-hmm. do it. Well, Mary McDonald was saying that, and it sounded like it was the very first time she went to Dragon Con. She was staying in one of the hotels mm-hmm. that hosted Dragon Con. And she'd gone down with some of her co-stars for dinner in the hotel restaurant. As they were getting ready to leave the restaurant, the lobby is just impacted with Dragon Con attendees. And she was saying the crowd was just so large that the mass of humanity was an intimidating sight. Mm-hmm. And she said, I just wasn't sure I wanted to step into a mass of humanity. And she said, I looked at my co-star and I forget, it was one of the guys, I forget who it was. But she said, I just, I told him, I don't know if I can step into that. And he said, you like football, right? And she said, yeah, of course. And he said, think of this as the world's biggest tailgate party. Only the team they're rooting for is yours. Yeah. And she said, that's why I realized these conventions are pop culture tailgate parties. Absolutely. And that mindset, I think, is one of the things in my mind that makes C2E2 different from San Diego in many respects. I mean, when at the end of these days, we would usually meet up in the lobby and stuff right outside the 
the exhibit hall. And just down the, the lobby a little bit are these, what, eight foot tall C2E2 letters. Yes. Yes. Big backdrop or whatever. Uh, it, and then right off to the right of them, as you look at them, is what I kind of refer to as the thumpa thumpa machine. <laughs> yes. It's the DJ booth. Yes. I mean, there's literally a, a party atmosphere. To oh, yes. Yeah. People are having a good time. When I went in on, I guess it was Saturday, through the line and stuff, they had a live band. They had a high school band. I, Based on the ages, yeah. I think it was a high school band. They were playing the Imperial March. Uh, they were playing all of the sci-fi and genre music. And they were dressed up. Yes. They were cosplaying at their instruments. And playing all the genre music you can think of that high schoolers learn. And yeah, they missed a few notes. But they were so enthusiastic, you didn't mind. I didn't notice any notes being missed, but I noticed the costumes. They seemed yeah. to be having fun. It was a yeah, it they was were. A cool way to kind of enter the convention. It was awesome. And given the long, winding line to the bag check, etc., you were in... Nobody was cranky to be in that long winding line because the music was livening it up and setting the atmosphere. Well, when it started moving, it moved pretty quick. Yeah, it did. And again, nobody seemed to be, oh man, we're having to stand this long line. What's going on? You know. And they had a divert out for people with no bags and no weapons point, yeah. which I thought was very cool. But even when I was up in the panel rooms and there was a couple of lines to stand in, it wasn't long. They weren't packing them super tight yeah um and and people seem to be just having a, a good time yeah um what did we do for dinner that well that was the night we did barbecue that was our friends asked us is it blasphemy to take texans to barbecue in another state we said that is the correct use of the term blasphemy but we'll go anyways yes it was quite good we went to smoke s m o q u e um, which when I mentioned that to, I guess it was Suntress on Sunday. He's like, oh yeah, good place. Uh, at least I think it was him. Might have been somebody else. Um, but it was one of those where we're driving, we're driving. We, oh, we got to turn here. We turn and it's like, I think all of Chicago is here. Yes. Cause there were bright lights all over. And there was a bit of a line, bit of a wait. It was good food. It was, it was. And it was kind of a small, I would say unassuming restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they seem to do a lot of takeout business. A lot of takeout business. They had a small, not tiny, I mean, their dining area was maybe roughly the size or a little smaller than the roadie place we'd been to the night before, mm -hmm. but that was just, again, kind of a convenience fast food place. Yeah. This is something where they had the tables packed in pretty tight and a bunch of guys keeping track of, you know, okay, you're going to sit here, you're going to sit there. To, to, they maximized the seating. Yeah. And were really well organized. It was, it was. I, I thought really good barbecue. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And dedicated fryer for the fries, so I could have French fries. Yeah, added bonus. Uh, again, that was another one of the uh, the the word puzzle dinners or whatever. Yes. You know, uh, so all eight of us ate there, and getting a table for eight's not easy, but uh, very true. What I love about going out to eat with this group is. They're very understanding about our food allergies. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's fun to talk with. Everyone's there to have a good time. We all get along, splitting the bill afterwards, painless. When they're so understanding about the food allergies that they were all willing to 
order the meat family style. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, the meat comes gluten-free, but they were all, you know, we're going to get poisonous sides, but we'll keep them away from the meat, make sure we don't contaminate the meat, and do family style. And there are some people I know elsewhere who are not considerate in that manner. Yes. So, very lucky. No, absolutely. And that's, mm-hmm. again, fun group to, to eat with and now, stuff. I want to start Sunday morning. I will let you start Sunday morning. Because Sunday morning, we went to Egg Harbor, mm-hmm. and we discovered that this is March. Normally, C2E2, in our experience, has been in April. April is apparently asphalt fly fishing season in yes, Chicago. Because we the Egg Harbor we usually eat at is at a mall. And in past years, we've come either going into it or coming out of it. We passed out by uh, Orvis, Orvis, uh, one of the stores. People being taught how to fly fish in the asphalt or in the grass, the parking lot. We're like, I can't imagine they catch much, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's a catch and repave program there. <laughs> so this year, uh, Fifi and Don were joining in for the Egg Harbor breakfast for the first time, and we were all excited. They were going to get to see the asphalt fly fishing. Only apparently, the season has not yet begun because it's March, so they didn't get to see it. So maybe next year when C2E2 goes back to April. Yes. We'll find out. Um, now for Sunday, the game plan I had was starting over at the uh, the Marvel booth area where I met up with uh, Nathan, who goes by ND Horse on the forum. Met him and his two kids, uh, one of which was dressed up as Hermione. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was going to be Kylo Ren, but showed up in it was another it's... Star Wars-ish. Yeah. Almost look like an R2 kind of thing. I didn't get a good look. Uh, his kids are of the age where um, shiny object. I was going to say, when I showed up, they were looking at shiny objects. I remember thinking, such adorable cosplay. No, they were great kids. They and were. again, at that age, uh, well, hell, at my age, these conventions are sensory overload. They are. So there was a very much, you know, every few seconds, there was something new for the, the kids to be looking at. But they seemed to be having a blast. They did. Uh, Nathan was dressed up as the uh, the 11th Doctor, Sonic Screwdriver mm-hmm. and all. I accidentally gave Hermione a spoiler. <laughs> well, yeah, because you had had a, uh, a little time turner thing. A time turner necklace. Uh, which was only a couple of boxes. Like, oh, she'll like that. Yeah. She, I think she was the right age. She seemed to really enjoy it and stuff. Apparently, well, later in the day, uh, Nathan had texted me if she's been playing with it all day. She's like, excellent. But she hadn't read the book it's in yet. So she was asking what it was for, and he finally told her, spoilers. Because she's only two books in. Because, again, she's, she's youngish. And apparently it's the third book that comes in. I guess so. I guess. Um, I didn't mean to give her a spoiler. But no, it's always fun when... Uh, uh, families go to these conventions and seem to have a good time all the way around. I loved all the cosplay we were seeing. Um, Saturday, when I sat down to have my lunch, uh, I sat at one of the big round tables and there was mm-hmm. a family with three kids and all three of the kids were cosplaying and the kid was dressed up as Ray. And I just, I love seeing so much wonderful cosplay around the convention. What I thought was fun was sometimes you would see a kid dressed up as, you know, Batman or something like that, and the mom would be his Batgirl or something. You know, the family was all getting into mm-hmm. it, you know, and it's it's fun to see these conventions being multi-generational. Mm-hmm. One of the best examples I saw of that that I thought was really cool was Sunday later in the day when I was over in Artist Alley. 
I had uh, finally made it over to Artist Alley, was zigging through, got over to Mike Norton, wanted to talk with him, but he had uh, just started a sketch. It's a family he's known for a little bit or whatever, and it just kind of, over the years, fell into almost like an annual tradition or whatever, where for every year these kids have been born, and there were two daughters, one of which I'm going to say three, maybe four, the other one seven or eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. But she was dressed up, the the older one, as Hermione with the wand and was doing the pose. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was on the mom's shoulders <laughs> as if the first one had made her fly because oh, he didn't draw the mom. How funny. And just watching Mike Norton kind of, you know, looking at the girl, getting the pose. And, doing okay, the sketch. Okay, got to draw it this way. And yeah. it's It was really cool. Nice. I mean, what a great tradition for a family to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Norton is just such a terrific artist. That's very cool. Um, I've known him, gosh, uh, probably long, well, longer than the podcast has been going on. I met him at Comic Geek Speak 200 in, uh, in, uh, the Reading, uh, Pennsylvania area, uh, back when they did that. Jeez, that would have been 2006 or seven ish. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but when that podcast was celebrating its 200th episode, uh, they had, you know, hey, let's everybody get together and just make a party out of it. Kind of That's a mini cool. convention thing. And what was cool about Norton at the time is he was working on the Adam book. And he knew stuff that was coming out, but he was really good about not spoiling stuff. Mm. And, you know, respect. He was, you know, he's as much of a fan as the rest of us. That's very cool. And man, he has gone through periods where it seems like every other page I turned in previews, he had his hand in a book. Nice. And, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, whatever, but just crazy good artist. I uh, love seeing him have success. He's a really nice guy. He's one that uh, whenever I see him at conventions, which admittedly is usually C2E2 and, you know, sometimes San Diego, if he makes it, he doesn't always make it there and stuff because it's, it's a big expense. And frankly, yeah. it's, I imagine from an artist's point of view, not the funnest convention because mm-hmm. it's just so overwhelming and so big, so long. Yeah. But no, Norton is one of the guys that whenever I get a chance to talk to, I, I try to. That's very uh, cool. A ton of respect for him. He's he's awesome. But yeah, watching the, the whole family. I, I got to chat with him later in the day. Um, but I, uh, what did I do? See, I started with with, uh, with Nathan, did a little of that, did some of Artist Alley, um, found one or two things. Man, they were tempting. Mm. Enough so that I went back later Sunday and almost bought uh, one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, artist whose name is Tino Thousands, I think. I'll have to look it up. I took a photo of his, uh, his name tag because I want to find his Facebook page. Mm. He has done kind of half page, yeah, vertical, yeah, vertical, um, of some of the Red Rangers. Oh, nice. And he had 10 or 12 of them. Wow. And at first, it's like, okay. That's uh, from Mega Force. That's from that. That's from this Power Ranger. And then I'm like, wait a sec. That's uh, the o- original Red Ranger from Super Sentai. That's Aka Red from from the Super Sentai, who's never shown up in the U.S. It's mm. these are the Japanese versions. But yeah. he started with the popular ones. Did a mm. thing on his Facebook, and his plans to keep doing them. Nice. And I'm like, I've got to follow this guy because if it could be something where it's like, yep, I can get you know a full set of. They're on season 40. He's got Akka, so uh, 40 some odd. Yeah. Done. I mean, he was charging, I think, 25 for the set of 10 or 12. 
So it's not like he's going crazy or something. Mm-hmm. But nice style. It was it was cool. Um, that was one of the things that I think anyone in Artist Alley that's looking for something to catch the eye of people mm-hmm. pick certain shows or there's some people who do the doctor who doctors mm-hmm. the enterprise or very star trek crews very sci-fi show type stuff if you've got here's your version of that group or whatever mm-hmm. provided i don't know what the rules are for copyright copyright or whatever yeah enough artists are doing it that there's got to be rules yeah uh, or ways to do it without getting your hide suit off I mean, whenever I see something that's, ooh, there are the, the, the various doctors, so I'll stop and take a look. Yeah. You know, I recognize that property. I like your art style. Mm-hmm. I saw one. I was over in one area. It was later in the day. I was talking with John Suntress from Word Balloon and somebody else, uh, artist friend of his. And kind of between the two, I'm looking straight down an aisle or two past. And up on this artist thing is the Hall of Justice. Uh, image and in front of it is the Adam West Batman, the uh, Christopher Reeve Superman, and Linda Carter Wonder Woman. Nice. And I'm, you know, from a ways away, it's like that caught my eye. I've got to go hunt that down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one that he was planning on putting a few more characters in. I'm not sure quite who, but was cool. So I wound up spending some time in, in Artist Alley. Didn't buy anything. Uh, usually I don't because I'm more for the comics than the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were a few things that were that were very tempting. But then at twelve fifteen, I wound up in uh, one of the panel rooms for the Power Ranger panel. You went with me to that. I did. I was curious. Um, it was uh, Karen Ashley who was the second Yellow Ranger, and Austin St. John who was the original Red Ranger. Mm-hmm. And we had just seen him up in Dallas a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was good there, but I thought he was way better here. He was, and part of that was. I don't want to say the panel was self-moderated, but I guess I would say that uh, Karen kind of handled the moderating. That's right, because he had the newspaper guy moderating. Yeah. The guy he had moderating in Dallas was not particularly good. Yeah, he was, I want to say, kind of soft-spoken, low-key, Soft-spoken, low-key, hesitant, awkward, and not used to, to moderating. Yeah, and just set an awkward tone for the panel. Whereas Karen Ashley has done, she's got a YouTube channel. She does mm-hmm. Uncensored Talk, I think is the name of her thing, where she's interviewed a lot of other people, Power Ranger people, uh, Star well, Trek people, other actors. Here's an example of her personality as it came out in the panel. Somebody goes to the microphone and says, uh, basically, if real time had passed. If you were the writer and could control it, what would your character have done? And be right now. Yes. So all these years later. And she says... My character would be living her life deep, deep undercover, and she would be Beyonce. Yeah. Because I think her character, when last seen, was like off in Africa, you know, saving the world or, or you know, something. And she mentioned Africa. She yeah. went to Africa so she could go deep undercover. It was hilarious. Kind of, she comes back as Beyonce. <laughs> yes. And it was funny because Austin's thing was, it's like, he pretty much would have done what I would have done. Join the military, he's a warrior, would have stayed alive, you know, best represent the country as best he can. It was, I thought, a brilliant answer. It was. was. And it felt true to to who Austin St. John seems to be. Yeah. Uh, Between the the two panels and stuff I've seen, I've I've got a definite respect for the guy. Well, and at one point, someone asked him a question. He's like, no, I just, not right now, just, I'm going to think on it. 
the question was based on the Bat in the Sun uh, YouTube channel that Jason David Frank yeah. has done some stuff as, where it's the the Green Ranger versus you know Ryu from Street Fighter or something. Mm-hmm. And the question was, would you be interested in doing that? And if so, who would you want to fight? Yeah, he said, just let me think on. I'll, I'll come up with an answer. And suddenly, later in the panel, he goes, "Who? Where's that guy? I have your answer. Stand back up. I want to tell you your answer." And it was um, Chuck Bruce, Norris. Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, and it was another person like that. Man, I forget who the third was. I can remember who you were teasing me. It should be. Oh, I was thinking, you no, know, Jackie Chan. Yeah, exactly. But it was a third person along those lines. It was another one that it's. And he his basic point was, you know, one his, his character's been undefeated, but even if he lost, he'd still go down proud. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I could just imagine. I forget who the third was, but that fight happening and were he victorious, cut to Jackie Chan with well, "What about me?" Yes, yes. But it was again. He's got a sense of humor. Um, he seems to have loosened up a little bit and gotten a little more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Smaller crowd, I think, than he had. Yeah, up in Dallas. So I think it, the room in Dallas. When, I, well, actually, smaller no, the room, same size crowd. Probably bigger crowd in a smaller room. Yes. Yeah. I would agree with that, actually. Because, again, there was something about the Dallas thing that just seemed a little off, not off-putting. And Dallas was the very last panel. Yes. The last panel of the convention, the minute he was done, boom, convention over. Yeah. So, better time, better moderator. Yeah. And just not being up there solo, I think, kind of helped him. Yeah. Um, Because he and Karen had never worked together. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But- But they know the same people, they're- on the circuit together, they've well, built a chemistry. Walter Jones seems to be the the, the connector. Glue. Yeah, the glue on that. He was the original Black Ranger. He was the one that got Austin St. John kind of plugged back into the group and stuff after he'd been doing the medic and mm-hmm. stuff overseas. Um, yeah. So I, it's funny because, I mean, I follow the Poundry stuff, but I'd never really clued in that he was one of the people that uh, uh, Walter kind of played that role mm-hmm. or whatever, and I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was cracking up when somebody asked, you know, is there anything that you kind of lobbied against? And you kept saying, why do we have to do this? And uh, Karen was saying, oh, yeah, yellow bobby socks every episode. Yeah, I think there were certain things of their standard attire they didn't like. And it was funny because Austin was commenting how at one point one of the female higher ups had come into the wardrobe and he didn't have a shirt on apparently yeah. at the time he and was changing he was was in good shape back then he seems to be in good shape now but around that she i think immediately went over to the wardrobe thing and this doesn't need sleeves this doesn't need sleeves this doesn't need sleeves oh the ninja suit doesn't need the top yeah you know kind of a let's show off this guy's body a bit more Mm -hmm. for 40 episodes he had either no sleeves or no shirt at all and he felt a little kind of creeped out and a little uncomfortable with that Mm -hmm. he's like an 18 year old or something yeah um on the one hand maybe could have been flattered on the other hand i could see having some body issues after that you know kind of a what you're looking at not a piece of meat yeah he's recently turned 18 and a woman twice his age is Looking at yeah. his body this way and saying, we want millions of women to look at your body this way. Now, he had a slightly creeped out, but hey, it worked. So maybe she was on to something kind of a. Yeah. Uh, but it was funny when he was commenting about when he was invited back for Forever Red. 
uh, in the 10th season and they're like, well, can you still fight? And he's like, is the Pope Catholic? Yeah. Because, I mean, the guy has been in the military or in, I don't know if it was in the military per se, but in a medic, been doing firefighting. He has stayed in shape. Yeah. He's still working out. Um, It's one that if they were to do another Forever Red kind of thing, I'm sure he'd be willing to come back and, and I'm sure he'd do a great job. There was another question about what he thought of some of the later seasons. And his answer was more around the lines of how doing the convention circuit, he's actually gotten to know some of these newer kids. Mm-hmm. With the was I ever that young kind of. There was a question, and I wish I could remember the exact question that got the answer out of him. But he looked at the crowd and he said, do any of you have kids? Oh, it was, did you think the Power Rangers would blow up as big as it did? And when it did, did that add any pressure? Yes, that was and he's it. like, absolutely. You know, and people raise their hands to this, do you have kids? And he says, okay, you know that, that pressure you feel to be a good role model to your kids and to not screw up in front of your kids and to raise them right and stuff. And he said, now imagine realizing that you're the role model to millions of kids around the world yeah take that multiply it by like 200 million or something yeah yeah and everything i've seen out of this guy indicates to me that's how he actually felt he took that to heart yeah that there is a sense of of responsibility and and he was 19 years old but again to me that's also a credit to his parents this he was the son of a marina cop yeah and just you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and that in that position, mm-hmm. you know, and it's something that I don't know that all of the later Ranger actors or even all the ones at the time really took to heart. Yeah, He's got, a, again, a sense of, of social responsibility uh, to the, the position he has in, in the culture. Yeah. You know, because somebody was asking something else. I forget what it was about. You know, other big name stars or, or something like that. And he means, his comment was like, you mean as, as big as, and named off the number of countries, the number yeah. of languages, how big Power Rangers was at its peak. Yeah. You mean that big kind of a thing? And not that, he, it, it, he did it in a way that it's like, I helped contribute to this that was yes. huge. Yeah. Without implying that he personally was that huge yeah and not implying he thought he had a huge ego no just that he's aware of what he was a part of yeah and that he's grateful to have been a part of that mm-hmm. yeah there was a, again with the the pressure of all of that and he's like i wouldn't change it for the world yeah one of the other questions that uh, got a very interesting response out of him and i think a, a very good one was when uh the question came up about uh the original yellow ranger who had later died in a, a car accident, uh, um, and kind of what was it like to fill her shoes and her yeah, not being around? Aimed at Karen. A, aimed at Karen, and she gave very much, just wanting to to do respect to to what had come before. She knew she was just uh, filling in, isn't the right word. She but, knew she was the second Yellow yeah. Ranger, and she will always be grateful that the first Yellow Ranger created the Yellow Ranger. Well, and built Power Rangers up to what it was that she could step into. It's like, yeah, hit the golden ticket kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the costume she wore was this other girl's or whatever, you know, Trini. Mm-hmm. And when it, when she was all done with all of that, you know, it was – his comment was basically, yeah, I really miss her. And that's mm-hmm. that's all I'm going to say about that kind of a mm-hmm. – you know, those are feeling – he 
He just very quickly said, I miss her every day. Yeah. That's it. You know, very, it seemed to me at least very clear, that's a loss that, that he still feels. Yeah. You can't do that many episodes with somebody for that long or whatever. Mm-hmm. Have them, them die at such a young age mm-hmm. and not still kind of feel that years later. Well, especially when you're going on this convention circuit and she's not here with you. Well, and also one of the uh, yeah, because that was one of the things Karen said she would have loved to have had her yeah, you know, on the convention circuit and basking in in all of what she had helped build yeah. Um, but also somebody had asked when uh, Jason David Frank's character came along, Tommy, and that Kimberly started going after you know, going with Tommy. It's prior to that, it seemed like she was going to be dating Billy. What's going on with that? And he's like, yeah. I had no idea who my character was supposed to be dating. Was it was it Trini? Was it uh, was it Kimberly? What was going on? You know. But and his comment was, if he had a choice, he'd have gone yellow, not pink. Oh. You know that reminds me. There was a funny comment and conversation during the Supergirl panel where somebody had asked uh, Melissa and Kyler if they thought there were going to be any gay or lesbian characters on the show openly, etc. And Melissa was saying somebody had come up to her at convention and told her about pink kryptonite. And she wanted to know if it was real because pink kryptonite was supposed to make her a lesbian while she was under its control. Yes and no. There was one issue where it showed up, but it was not in the mainstream continuity. It was almost a kind of a spoof sort of a thing, Mm. the context it was in. Interesting. And I forget exactly if it was... During Final Crisis or something where they're dealing with parallel worlds or whatever. But basically you wind up with Superman having been hit by pink kryptonite and essentially starting to hit on on Jimmy. Oh, how funny. I forget where that was. But it was one of those where, again, it was alternate universe. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen. Let's show it this way. Interesting. Um, But yeah, the Power Ranger panel was was very well attended. Mm. Uh, It was very fun. Yeah. Um, they, they answered the question seriously. They had fun with it. They did a great job. Um, and very respectful of the fans, very grateful for the fans. It was really, um, and they were really touched when people, you know, the anti-bullying stuff really meant stuff to various people, whatever. A lot of people thanked them for the PSAs, the public service announcements. They did. Well, and just being a role model that the, the girls can kick as much butt as the guys and all Mm -hmm. You know, there's an aspect of, sure, Power Rangers, particularly some of the early seasons, cheesy as all get out, anything could turn into a monster, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. It's a little nutso, but it served a very interesting role in our culture and a very beneficial role. Well, Karen brought up the interesting point that when you watch Power Rangers, no enemy can be defeated by a single Power Ranger. It's always the team. It's very much a team-oriented thing and a diverse multiracial team. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, as she was talking about it, she's like, Power Rangers was diverse before Hollywood was talking diversity. Yes. Yeah. It, it was a fascinating Very much ahead of its panel. time. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. I had a couple other panels I was thinking about going to. But I dragged you to a panel right after that one. Well, that's right. You did. I um, did. Because I had taken all the other ones I had had on my list off the list because I knew I wanted to spend a little time uh, on the floor. But I convinced you to- uh, We went to the John Ratzenberger one, yeah, uh, to, tail end of that one. To take a little trip down to where everybody knows your name. The guy who played Cliff was on stage. Uh, Claire Kramer, who played Glory on- 
Buffy. Buffy was was moderating. Mm-hmm. She does a great job with that. She does. Um, got some really interesting stories out of out of John Ratzenberger. Mm-hmm. He was very interesting to me in how he approached the question out question and answer period. Uh, the only guest I've ever seen who sat on the couch for the moderated mm-hmm. section. And then when she said, we're going to take questions from the mic, the first thing he said was, turn up the house lights. I'd like to know there's more than one person in the audience. But then he stood up and he wandered over to the right side when someone on the right side was at the mic answering a question. And then he wandered over to the left side. And he wanted to make eye contact with each person who asked him a question. And it was not something that was obtrusive of, I must walk here. I must walk there. It was just kind of a natural moseying over, very yeah. conversational. Yeah. Very um, kind mm-hmm. of a low key kind of kind of aspect to it. Yeah. He gave some really good good answers to some questions. There were mm-hmm. some where it's that's eh, it's voice acting. It's not that hard. Anyone mm-hmm. who's telling you it is, you know, whatever. But there was also some stuff where he was going into a little bit of here's the craft. Here's mm-hmm. how I build some of the characters. They're all based on someone I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody was asking him about improv, mm-hmm. and he was saying, and it was fascinating to me because he was talking about Saturday Night Live, which I liked a lot in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And sometime after that, and I don't know when, it just got to the point where I couldn't watch it anymore. Well, it stopped being improv and comedians working together to, they've got their shtick, and it's, when is it their turn for their line? Yeah, yeah. And his advice for for improv is speak less, listen more. Yeah. You know, be in the moment, be aware of it, build on what's there, read, be aware of what's going on, have Mm. stuff you can draw on, Mm -hmm. Um, but listen to what the other guy's saying. Because if you're just waiting for, oh, I got my one-liner ready, Yeah. you know, waiting for your turn to talk is not a good way to have either a conversation or, or performance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked if he remembered what his favorite joke was from Cheers. Yeah. And I love that because he was saying that uh, it was one of those uh, those little factoid type things that was a joke. And he said, you know, the director told him, I want to start on you finishing one of your jokes well, and stories. The director had, I need another 30 seconds. Yes. Yes. So what basically he was sitting at the bar, he had a napkin, he had a pen, he had George Wynn on one side, somebody else on the other. They so action, he's like da 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 and that's how this happened, you know. The tractor seat was invented. Yes. And he said what he loved And they're like, uh huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> he said what he loved about that one though is it's just enough to make the people next to him laugh and the audience go, What? And fill in all the rest of what must have come before. And that's how the tractor seat was invented. You get the tail end. You're like, what brought that up? What did he just draw on that napkin? What's, uh-huh. go- you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't know if I've necessarily seen that exact thing, but I've, I, I probably have because I can picture exactly pretty much that. Yeah. Now he's great character actor, done a ton of great stuff in uh, various uh, voiceovers for movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Tears was such a wonderful show. Yeah. Classic sitcom. Yeah. A lot of sitcoms I get bored with because the characters don't grow, don't interact. But there are a couple that are just funny and well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheers is one of them. Going older school, Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, 
uh, I Love Lucy, which he referenced, because basically at one point he realized he's essentially Fred Mertz, you yes. know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are, uh, Night Court's another great one. Yes. But, yeah, his, his panel was good. It was uh, after that one ended, before the two S.H.I.E.L.D. ones started, that I got uh, a text that uh, basically, because I've been trying to hook, hook up with John Suntress. Yes. All weekend, and it's just, I was at a panel, or he was doing something. It's just a uh, busy convention. Um, In the best possible way. Yes, absolutely. I want to say I, that. I love hanging with John, because he he knows, like, everybody, mm-hmm. I think. He's uh, great introducing me around the people, which I, I, I'm horrible at doing that myself. I'm, I'm the invisible man there. Um, but he's just fun to talk to. Um, I enjoy hanging with him, hearing how stuff's going for him, and what he's heard is kind of the buzz around things or whatever. Um, so I headed over to Artist Alley, kind of finished doing the circuit, hung with him for a bit, talked and stuff. That was, again, great fun. I, I, I love uh, chatting with him. And again, Artist Alley is like the place to do that. Yeah. Because, again, he goes 10 feet and says, like, oh, hey, how you doing, buddy? This is so-and-so, you know. And mm-hmm. He is just a social maven, I think would be a good way to say it. But also, he is one of, if not the earliest of comic book podcasters, mm. I'd be amazed. Yeah. He's been doing it forever. Uh, the Word Balloon podcast, anyone who hasn't checked it out, who's interested in interviews and stuff, that's where to go. Yeah, I would agree. You know, that's that's one of the reasons uh, I don't do a lot of interviews. I'm not particularly comfortable at it. And I know there are guys like, like John Suntress that just do it so well and so often. It's like, dudes, you know, I, it's not that I, I couldn't compete with him. Where I don't see the point. He's, yeah. He's doing it well. And uh, I've got other things I can, I can and prefer to do. Yeah. Well, and going back to that, you know, from the script to the page, et cetera, panel. Uh, one of the things I really respected about the artists when they were looking at each other's panels was, you know, that's what he does really well. I wish I did that as yeah. well. I loved watching each of them point out one another's strengths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know interviewing, not my strength. Yeah. I've done so. a couple of interviews I'm really proud and really happy with, but I've done a few others. It's like, wow, I was... Uh, the, the didn't get the answers I was hoping for, the depth of the answers, or I didn't have the next question, or yeah, whatever. But uh, you know, that's part of why I like doing the panels at San Diego with John. Mm. He keeps things moving. He's always got some good questions, uh, and he kind of keeps his pulse, uh, finger on the pulse of what's going on, or whatever. Um, and again, sees just the plethora of different perspectives at which people can come at stuff from. Mm-hmm. Because at any one of these conventions. You want to go look for original art, there's original art to look for. You want to go back issue shopping, there's back issues. Your thing is talking to the creators, they're there to be had. Get sketches, great. You want in- uh, anime stuff, there's stuff on that. You're into cosplay and none of the rest of the stuff, there's stuff for that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... Yeah, yeah, Han had a booth uh, partnered with some uh, cosplay fabrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah Han was one of the, uh, the celebrity... Um, Costu- uh, judges for the costume yeah. stuff. Well, but these new cosplay fabrics are now in Joanne Fabrics stores yeah. nationwide that got released the same weekend. Well, I mean, the whole concept of somebody going from dressing up at a convention to she's a cosplayer to she's a known cosplayer to she's like one of the best known cosplayers to she's a celebrity judge at the cosplay contest. She now has her own brands of fabric at yeah. nationwide stores. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. 
you know? So, and, and cosplay is big at, at C2E2. Yeah. Tons of great costumes, um, a few of which are just, wow, that's that's a crazy amount of work to have done. I mean, I was hearing, uh, I think it was the chance telling us about how there was a Groot that for the costume contest or whatever, took like seven or eight people to get the various pieces to the place, reassemble, etc. Mm, it's like, jeez. Just amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my hat is off to the people who do that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, It takes a certain amount of skill, creativity, and determination, and coordination of just individual and groups and stuff to make that happen. Yeah. Well, while you walked the floor with John Santris, I went to both of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panels, uh, J. August Richards and Chloe Bent, and uh, really enjoyed both of those. Uh, the room was only about third full for each of those, which surprised me. I mean, it's a current show. Um, it's a current show, but it was getting a little later in Sunday, so I think a lot of people had a, I got shopping to finish oh, up whatever. Very true. Very true. They were not the best-timed panels in that respect. And that room is the furthest from the floor. Feels like a longer walk than it seems like it should feel like. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I really enjoyed those panels. There were some really good laughs. Um, Chloe Bennett has this hilarious habit. She may not even be aware of it. But when someone who's been through her autograph line comes up to the microphone to ask a question. At C2E2, everyone's really good about saying, Hi, my name is Kay. I'm from Austin, Texas. And I want to thank you for the autograph yesterday. And my question is, well, as they get through the, I want to thank you for my autograph yesterday, she is, I remember you. Or, yeah, I know. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's much better than the, who are you again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and there was one person who gets up to the microphone and she says, and yesterday, and she goes, you gave me Garrett's popcorn. Yeah. I, I think you should call her bluff on that. <laughs> Go up not having been to an autograph. I got your autograph. She huh? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, she had all six of her brothers, both her parents and her grandmother in the audience. Wow. Because uh, her family is local to Chicago. So at least twice during the panel, she murmured into the microphone, my mom is so embarrassed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was funny to me because we had seen uh, David Mazouz in mm -hmm. Dallas, who's 15. Yeah. I don't actually know Chloe Bennett's age, but I'm going to say older than 15. Yes. I would say somewhere young 20s. Um, she's just so energetic and so happy and so excited. With how the show is doing and their family got to see her doing this. At one point she said, all those years I went to your sporting events and now you had to come to mine. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, so David was doing the very mature, very responsible adult to the point he had to remind someone in the audience, I'm still a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas Chloe was just living it up and loving it. That's good. I'm I'm glad because, I mean, I know Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. gets kind of uh, mixed feedback, both in terms of reviews and what the fans think, and I've, I've been there myself. Yeah. You know, there have been times I thought it's been better than other times, but certainly the, the cast, by and large, um, she's doing a terrific job. Clark Gregg, he's one I want to see at a panel sometime at a yes. convention. Yes. Yes. I think he just does such a great job. The character of Phil Coulson is... Yeah. 
just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Um, At both uh, panels, they were asked, are you Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Which I get. It's all Marvel. Mm-hmm. But I was a little surprised. Are you Team Superman or are you Team Batman? Yeah, I think um, the uh, the movie TV fans, not so brand aware. Yeah, I was intrigued by that. But I thought it was funny when they would kind of look around like, what answer am I supposed to give? Is there one that that you want to hear from me? Because they weren't quite sure what the audience was aiming for. And people would call out, Wonder Woman! And they're like, oh, that's such a great answer, Wonder Woman! For the Superman-Batman one, yeah. For the Cap-Iron Man, I would well, hope they have a clue. Yeah. No, they they did. What did they? Um, She was definitely Cap. Can understand that. I would think so for her character. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think with him. I would hope he would have been too for- I for, think so. I'm pretty sure. Because as Deathlock, yeah. the, you know, being kind of uh, uh, regulated and whatnot, uh, I don't think that'd work well for him. Well, and uh, J. August Richards was talking about the fact that he thought it was kind of funny that his Angel character and his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. character, in the end, they're both all about family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so they were both very good panels. Um, and then I went down to the floor and uh, ended up talking with one of the guys at one of the book booths that they were uh, selling books, and I was just kind of reading the backs of books, getting ideas for Mm-hmm. things to wish list and someone came up behind me and yanked on my bun and said i was looking for you and i turned around and there was kevin j anderson mm. uh, who i hadn't seen in a few years a very talented author oh yeah big time yeah. author um so i've known him through san diego for i don't want to confess how long ago i was in college many a moon yeah since last century how's that um, so it was awesome to see him, and I think he and I spent 15 or 20 minutes talking at the booth, and it turned out that he had uh, he has so many different series of books that he kind of had his books spread out, one on each of the three sides of their corner booth, and he was just living at the booth throughout the weekend, and anybody who bought one of his books, whoever cashed them out, would say, would you like it signed by the author? He's happy to talk with you. So instead of doing a panel or being in the autograph area for an hour, he was available at almost all times. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, they had a good good location for the booth. I thought mm-hmm. it was a good design of the booth. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. You know, over the course of uh, the afternoon, going through Artist Alley, had a number of good discussions with a lot of people. Uh, Steve Bryant, always talk with him when I get the chance. Uh, Tom Zoller, uh, who says he's got, I think, another project coming up, um, which I told him, definitely let me know for the preview spotlight, because to me, a Tom Zoller book is worth buying. Loving Capes is brilliant. Uh, Long Distance, he just, he landed the ending on that. Each issue was excellent. Um... He's just so talented and so humble about it, too. He's he's somebody that I really want to see do a book about the writing, the creative process or whatever, because his stuff is so accessible. It's got a rich world to it. Mm-hmm. You know, these characters clearly existed before, during, and after the story. You don't necessarily know the specifics of all the before or all any of the after, but they feel... Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just, well, they existed for the 30 seconds they were on screen. Yeah, that was uh, one of the writing tips that Stephen J. Cannell used to give in his seminars. Was uh, Some of his early writing was considered popular 
because when the fire truck would arrive to rescue the cat out of the tree, mm. the woman coming out of the house would be complaining, my dinner's burning because the cat went up the tree and I had to call you. And the fact that she's complaining about what's happening inside the house and that she was making dinner implied something was going on in her life. It inconvenienced her because she had something else going on. Yeah, yeah. Whether you know all of the ins and outs doesn't matter, but it's this mm-hmm. shouldn't have happened to her. Yeah, and it gives her life both a context, and it says that she exists beyond cat and tree, so she called 911. She's not just standing there immobile waiting for you. But that goes to the uh, the cheers scene, mm-hmm. with the and that's how the tractor chair or whatever scene yeah. was invented, you know, kind of a things were happening at the bar before the camera turned on. Exactly. You know, um, yeah. No, Zoller's stuff again, uh, with the uh, long distance. It's a four issue series. Drew and I talked about it, uh, one of the issues on it. And the amount we get to know about it's a couple having a long distance relationship. So you've got two different locales. Mm. Each person has their own supporting cast, and you really get to know about them, their struggles of their supporting cast members. Mm. You know, it's just a rich, detailed world. It's a lot of fun. Mm hmm. Um, I, it's one that, you know, I I told him, it's like, if you're not shopping that around, you should be, you know? So I don't know if we're ever going to see something happen with that property, but man, I I hope we do because it's like all of his stuff that I've read. It's just, it's terrific stuff and deserves a a much, much wider audience than comics can provide. But I, I love his comics work. So I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. Um, but yeah, talking to those guys, uh, Santris, Norton, uh, over the course of the weekend again, Drew, uh, the guys from, from Cowabunga, uh, Eric and, and James, that was a lot of fun. Nathan, uh, Brian Haberlin was, was just great to talk with. Um, and, uh, and again, the guys over at Comics Bento, I mean, they were just, to me, one of the things that, that, uh, C2E2 is uh, kind of more about than some other conventions for me is the, uh, I don't want to say the networking. But, but the time to actually talk to people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, being able to, to chat with Mike Norton for a bit at at or around his table in Artist Alley, you know, when it's not slammed, he's got time and mm-hmm. you can just kind of hang loose for a little bit. Yeah. For me, C2E2 is a more manageable convention than San Diego because I can walk into panels. That's not to say I'm going to get seated in the front row. No. But I don't have to line up for two hours to guarantee I get through the door. Yeah. Going to one panel doesn't lock you out of the two or three before it. Yeah. And I really like being able to get into, what did I go to, seven or eight panels over two days. That was wonderful. Yeah. I went to a ton of panels, had time to do the entire hall floor, all of Artist Alley. Mm-hmm. And talked to a lot of people, some at, at at length, and was never bored and never felt like I couldn't do everything. Yeah. The amount of time I had and the amount of time I needed matched very well. Yeah. Uh, plus, again, we had some great meals uh, before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunday night, we wound up, uh, we were going to go to- Grand Lux. Grand Lux. But there was going to be an hour wait, so we opted, maybe not so much, wound up at uh, Slurping Turtle, mm-hmm. uh, which we'd eaten at in past years. Good food. Mm-hmm. Had a really good uh, rice bowl mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Um, and it's one of those, it's nice. In past years, again, this would have been a leave earlier in the afternoon, have a sandwich at the airport, and 
fly mm-hmm. out type thing, but having uh, a more relaxed Sunday, having time to kind of repack everything before we got up this morning on Monday to, to leave town and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, just made for a, a much better trip, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we did another breakfast. Uh, it ended up at Egg Harbor. That was not the original plan. We found a uh, gluten-free establishment. but And turn- by we, we mean Linda and Erica. Yes, our local representatives did a great job. <laughs> Finding a, a totally gluten-free, everything in it, uh, ca- uh, a cafe, but it was more bakery than cafe. Mm-hmm. So wound up again at a different uh, Egg Harbor, but again, fun to spend a little more time with our friends mm-hmm. and stuff like that and then fly out. Now, just to bring everything back full circle, uh-huh. we get to the airport, <laughs> we uh, get through security, we go pick up uh, some uh, which popcorn? Garrett's popcorn. Garrett's popcorn for a co-worker of mine. So you promised it to my coworker. Yes, I did. How you managed to do that, I don't know. <laughs> but I've got it to take to my coworker. Um, but anyways, we do the get the popcorn, do that. We're heading to the gate, and uh, we get stopped by somebody. It's like, well, are you flying American? Why, yes. You know, and they're in an official shirt, so it looks, you know, whatever. But I'm not paying too much attention to the shirt. Do you have a frequent flyer number? I'm like, it's funny you ask that. <laughs> I think I do. You think I don't. Do I exist? <laughs> the poor lady looked so baffled by John asking, do I exist? And it turns out it was somebody from City offering me a credit card like I've got to get frequent flyer miles like they're trying to give to American, but Americans saying I don't exist, again, bringing it back all full circle. <laughs> So once she identified, but I'm with the city, I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> and that baffled her, too. She had absolutely no idea what I was talking about, oh. which I had figured. But she, she asked the wrong question. <laughs> well, we told her, actually, that Citibank has been giving us excellent customer service over the past week. We're very grateful for the Citibank card. And she might want to leave it right there. It's one thing when you've got to get one bureaucracy to go fight another one who's gotten their own records messed up. But yeah, then we had a, a good flight back. Uh, we landed half an hour early in Austin. We did. So that gave me time to uh, go pick up my comics. Uh, hopefully I'll have a chance to get everything read before I review in uh, about 21 hours uh, from now with Drew. Uh, of course, I've got to sleep. Uh, go to work, uh, a few things like that. But no, C2E2 was just a really fun time. It's a good size convention. If you're in that neck of the woods, uh, it's certainly worth checking mm-hmm. out. It's got a great vibe to it. If you're into process type stuff, there was a lot of good panels on that. They had a really good uh, group of, of celebrity guests there. An amazing artist alley. It's one mm-hmm. of the biggest I think I've seen in any convention we've been mm-hmm. to, including San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um. It's just uh, a really well-populated, a great group of artists. Uh, the exhibitors, um, I thought they had a good mix of that. A lot of uh, comics, uh, some games, uh, publishers, creators, toy stores, uh, Funko Pop stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing, At- that, nothing that really felt like, what, what's this doing? I mean, Geico, okay, fine. But that was just like, you know, granted a big booth, but one booth out of. Yeah. At uh, Chloe Bennett's panel, she asked everybody, if you have your phones, will you pull them out and tweet at Original Funko and tell them you want a Quakes bobblehead? (laughs) Because doesn't it make perfect sense? Because she quakes. 
and bobbleheads. They bobble, which is That's like quaking. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> Clever. Yes. I wonder how that Twitter spike happened. <laughs> That's what I kept thinking. She said like three times and she's like, I don't see anyone pulling out phones. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I should stop with this. <laughs> <laughs> she should have had everyone do it and say, okay, press enter now. No. <laughs> yeah, really? So I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. Now, again, I had a, a great time at the convention, uh, hung out with a lot of cool people, uh, always enjoy meeting listeners and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and co-hosts. Uh, <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun. Well, now that we know you exist, I've enjoyed meeting you. Yes. Well, and again, hanging with Chris Marshall and stuff. I, I don't talk to him often enough these days. We still trade emails and stuff like that, but we would always do the once a month thing with the podcast, but you know, he's got other things going on and whatnot. Um which I respect, um, but miss you know, yeah. chatting with him. But again, good hanging out with him for a bit, uh, Drew and meeting Drew's brother Kyle, stuff like that. Because they were in the, um, which panel were they in? They were in the um, How a Comic Publisher Thinks. Ah. Uh, that one. Um, so yeah, I, again, had a great time. It's definitely a convention I enjoy going to. He's certainly on the list to, to continue going to. I agree. I really enjoy it. Um, this is the same group that runs um, New York. Mm-hmm. Read Pop. Read Pop. So we're given passing thought to going to New York. Certainly is uh, one I would consider, but uh, would have to have the right circumstances. Make sure I could eat and logistics and get a press pass and maybe uh, get some information on some of the local stores and find time to, to do that on the same trip. It would be silly of me to, to go to New York and not go hit uh, Jim Hanley's Universe, Midtown, of, uh, I'd like to go hit uh, Image Anime's store for some of the Super Sentai story, uh, toys, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd have to figure out the logistics, but that's certainly a possibility. I really did not spend that much at this convention. Um, we got the, uh, the t-shirt subscription we talked about for about mm-hmm. $15 a month. Um, I bought some comics from Aftershock. They had a good booth there. Uh, I'd picked up uh, at one point Super Zero number one, but hadn't followed up with it. So I got two, uh, issues two and three, mm. and then the first four issues of Replica because we've been I've been seeing them doing reasonably well as a publisher, and it's like I need to check out what they're doing. Mm. But really, other than that, because um, even all of that said and done is under about thirty five dollars or whatever. Like I added about a, another third of I think a quarter of what I spent was on soda. I only bought three. They were expensive. You didn't get them out of machines, which after one day were full of cash and couldn't take more cash. Let me put it this way. I bought three sodas and you had one of them. So I only had two. Sorry. But no, it was a fun show. But uh, anytime you go to a convention, pace yourself. Go Mm -hmm. in uh, with as much knowledge as you can on what panels are, what celebrities or artists or creators, what you want to get out of the convention. Because the more you know that going in, the more likely you are to, to have a fun time. Yeah, I agree with that. Anything else? Is that pretty much it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.